stories by kids listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? Episode 38 of Love That Album, the uh, album and music discussion podcast. And today, I really think I should be changing the name of the show to Love That Film. Um, this is not the first time we've been discussing films on this podcast, but I'll explain in a couple of minutes why this one is a little bit different. But my very special guest, who has not been on the show in quite a while, is Dr. Zom. Welcome. What? <laughs> I wish, I, wish I, had a little, back. I wish I had a little mixer here so I could play the cree-cree-cree-cree, I, I have returned. Thank you very much, and you've returned from the wilds of West Virginia. Yes. And my, my, my mouse is, um, I don't know, it's being squirrely. So in, instead of creak-creak-creak, we should be doing squeak-squeak-squeak. I don't know what's going on here. It won't move. Anyway, technical difficulties will not stop this podcast. No, they, ne- they never have. Um, <laughs> and, and we've had more than technical difficulties. Why am I saying this? Um, anyway, uh, yes, for, for the one or two of you out there who don't know the good doctor, Dr. Zom, I presume. Dr. Zom is one half of the cast of Silver and Gold. Uh, and I first caught hold of The Good Doctor as a uh, feedback contributor to Paleo Cinema. I'm, I'm doing all these voices. I don't know why, probably because I heard you do all those voices on your Paleo Cinema feedback. That's what they say. But I don't know anything about that stuff. That's right. just like uh, rumors. So you, in 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 a way, I think you probably inspired all this you know, thing of Sylvester Stallone and oh my and, god, and don't Jason, even say Jason Statham calling up your podcast. If I thought that were true, I would slash my own throat right now. I have, I have, it's alive, it's alive. I've created a monster. You, 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 you have, you've gone and created a a, a Franken Oberholzer or something like that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez. Oh, Stallone this is, will not this leave me alone. This is Sylvester Stallone. And I want to tell you about a movie. Uh, no, anyway. Um, it's like, listen, that. Sylvester Stallone. I mean, for God's sakes, get a life. He's, like, obsessed with me now. Make a movie. It, get... Make a good movie. How about that? <laughs> yeah, well, why start now? Um, <laughs> anyway, so I have invited the good Dr. Zong to come and talk with me. As I said, we're going to change the name of this episode to Love That Film because, and we have spoken about films before on this show, two with your good self. We spoke about Quadrophenia and we spoke about Rock and Roll High School and with Justin Bozong spoke about One Trick Pony. But in all those episodes, we had associated soundtracks uh, 
or, or concept albums to talk about as well as the film and how that music worked its way into the film. And today we're just going to talk about films rather than the music associated with it per se. Of course, these films that we've chosen, That'll Be The Day and Stardust, uh, I think That'll Be The Day from 1973 and Stardust from 1974, uh, both films out of England starring David Essex and a cast of thousands. Um, they, they do uh, music is a part of the story, a very important part of the story, but really not necessarily the focus. Um, you know, th- those other albums, you know, the the music was telling the story, but not so much here. So we're, we, this is really going to be a bit of an experiment for me to be just talking film rather than talking music. But given that they are music related, I thought it was valid, and you know, fuck it, it's a podcast, I can do what I want. So. Um, <laughs> Thank you very much for um, agreeing to talk about these fine films. Um, before we get into talking about the films, um, anything... I get the money on the back end, right? Yeah, 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 sure. I'll, okay. I'll pay, I'll pay yeah. you twice as much as what I paid you last time. Yes! Awesome. Yeah, fantastic. Mind you, after it's converted to to uh, American dollars... Um, Let's see, zero times <laughs> what? <laughs> what? 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 <laughs> All right, look, I'll tell you what, I think what we'll do... Um, oh, actually, no, I forgot to mention, later on in the show, uh, we'll be having the regular segment from uh, Eric Reanimator, a.k.a. Eric Peterson, the uh, who just actually recently appeared on the film podcast, previously known as the List Film Podcast, with Ricardo and Jenny and Kevin, and uh, he went over his um, 2012 uh, favorite films as they all did and uh, so nice to have um, uh, to, to have Eric associated to have someone on the show associated with a multi-million download podcast such as that um, so we welcome him back and um, time it, it's it's interesting I get Eric to send me in his segments uh, a little bit in advance so um, the timing of this as um, as it turns out is a little bit strange but um He'll be talking in his segment, An Album I Love, about a compilation of English band The Trogs. And we only heard this week of the uh, sad death of uh, the lead singer of The Trogs, Reg Presley. And Presley, no, that is not his name. Um, so there's there's no mag- mention made in uh, Eric's segment about Reg because this was recorded some weeks ago. But uh, the timing of this has um, proved interesting. So uh, we'll be hearing from Eric later on and his opinion about um, the Trog's uh, best of compilation and what he had to say about that. That's but, one one thing that uh, you know. It's just a this is a obvious statement, but you know, the older you get, it just seems like it doesn't seem like it. It just the way it is. Uh, people that you grew up listening to, people that you grew up watching, people that you know in real life, you you. Uh, Start to see people uh, leaving uh, sometimes earlier than what they should, but uh, it's it, it it kind of makes you feel your own mortality a little bit. Oh yeah, uh, you know, uh, there's there's been a lot of uh, of uh, people in the entertainment business that uh, I look back now and I see that's you know say uh, Janis Joplin or uh, Jimi Hendrix or you know whoever. And and you see what age they were when they died, and now you're twice that age, and you think, oh my God, you know what, what, you know, when what was I doing at that age? 
And what if my life would have been cut off at that point? I, look at all the stuff I would have missed. Mm, mm. So live, live young, uh, live fast, uh, die young, leave a good-looking corpse. Sometimes when when you're young and you uh, you know hope I die before I get old, well, once you reach a certain age, uh, you know, uh, I'm glad that I didn't die before I got old because you know there's a lot of stuff that's uh, kind of cool that uh, wouldn't wouldn't have got to do uh, love that album. So let me ask you: Have you um, have you read the Townsend autobiography that just came out a couple of months back? No, I have not. I'd be I I haven't read it either, but I'd be very interested to uh, to uh, buy a copy of that and um, see what he actually has to say in there. Whether he uh, actually has any words about um, you know, regretting of writing those words, or well, or, I just think that you know. Uh, when you're young and you don't look past a certain point and you right. look at all the old people as being you know full of you know whatever or uh they they they've sold out or or whatever you know but you have a totally you have a different perspective that's that i you know i hate to say this cuz i don't want to put anybody down i mean maybe some people live by that like james dean or whatever but i'm sure if james dean uh would have had at 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 the last fleeting second, if he would have had the opportunity to uh, stop that car, or if John Belushi would have said, you know, to Kathy Evelyn Smith, "Hey, you know, I think I've done enough tonight. Don't inject me with that last, you know," um, and their families, you know, I, I'm sure that uh, they would they would have wanted them to be around. But I know, I mean, even when I was at that age. You know, I, I was kind of like, you know, I don't give a, you know, what about this or that. And uh, if I die tomorrow, I don't care. And, uh, you know, but uh, that's, I think it's just kind of a, an, a lack of knowledge and maturity. Right. Pete, Pete is glad that he's alive. I'm, I'm sure, though, I'm also sure he's probably uh, uh, looked back on you know, um, the passing of Keith Moon and Ent yeah. uh, Whistle with. A whole lot of regret, and he's probably gone and looked at his own mortality. And um, it's interesting. Well, of course, we're going to make this segue. We mentioned Keith Moon, and he's right. very much a part of the films we're discussing tonight. I think we're going to leave this rather morbid <laughs> subject. What we love that? Oh my God, we've gone and turned into gone. And, I, don't, I don't. I can't think what we've turned into. But so at this point, what we'll do is we're going to um, go to a break. And then come back, and we're going to discuss the films uh, under subject of this episode of Love That Film, uh, Love That Album. That'll be the day. And Stardust, uh, we'll be back in a couple of moments. You're listening to Love That Album with Morrison, Dr. Zom. The one with the big knockers is mine. You can have the other one. Oh, where's that shampoo? I can't see a bloody thing here. Tonight's their night, lucky cows. It didn't look like much to me. We'll have to split them up. I'm not having you watching me on the job. Oh. What about if they don't fancy us? That one with the big tits. Her name's Sandra. Oh, she looks a bit like Sandra Dee, doesn't she?
All right, smart ass. It's not that funny. <laughs> I mean, what? <laughs> oh, that was when I was at sea, wasn't it? Got pissed. Well, I wasn't actually at sea. I used to work on the ferries between New Brighton and Liverpool. One night I was out my school and my mates talked me into it. Bastards. <laughs> Come on, it's not that funny. I've been coming here for five seasons, you know. Yeah. Like a holiday to me. Well, after ten months on the bloody road with the fair, you need a break. What are you doing the fair? Dodgems. Good place for pulling the birds. Quick tickle, see if they go, and then round the back, get me end away. <laughs> <laughs> that reminds me. Let's go and order our slices for tonight. Well, that'll be the day. be the day when you say That'll be the day when you make me cry. Say you're gonna leave. You know it's a lie. Cause that'll be the day when I die. Reckon we got a Grammy award in that? Well, you know, I I know that Skype. Uh, that will probably come out so horrible because Skype. I've tried that on uh, some of our feedback where uh, to sing along, and it's always like two or three seconds off. So we were really good. I, 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 I everybody was really impressed. That. I was really impressed. Yeah, we were awesome. Oh, oh, look, you know, you, as as I say in in the film, so you weren't so bad yourself. Um, so what I'm going to do? Let's um, let's see what um, uh, the IMDb description of this is, you know, which. Um, Seems to be de rigueur for uh, for the um, film discussion podcast. We read what they have to say and say were, were they close? Were they not? Uh, in the in the description. Okay, so uh, the the synopsis: Abandoned by his father at an early age, Jim McLean seems to have inherited the old man's restlessness. Despite his apparent intelligence, Jim decides not to take the exams that would pave his way to university. He lives for a time a life consisting of dead-end jobs and meaningless sex. What? Before What's return- that? <laughs> <laughs> meaningless? Meaningless. Before, re- before returning home to work in his mother's shop. Uh, yeah, I think, well, anyway, I think we'll, we'll stop there at that plot synopsis. Um, so, Zom, your thoughts yeah. on That'll Be The Day? Well, um, I had never heard of That'll Be the Day. I mean, I've heard of the Buddy Holly song, of course, yes. but uh, when you proposed these uh, movies, which I think it was like eight and a half years ago. Yeah, something uh, like Before we said, even knew each other, I think. Yeah. yeah. Right. Let's do these two movies. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I had never heard of this movie, and uh, so I didn't know what to expect. I didn't even know what it was about. I, I assumed that it would have some something to do with Muzak, um, and I was pleasantly surprised. Um, I really enjoyed this. I don't. I, I shouldn't say that already. I should wait until and, and build up like the the tension and the drama, uh, and give my my rating or whatever at the end. But I will say this: I was pleasantly surprised. <laughs> I've um, given away the ending, and I, I should say. Uh, for those of you who don't like spoilers 
turn off right now. Um, because, well, really, to talk about the second film, we need to talk about what happens at the end of the first film. But this is more about the journey. Yes, the journey, if you will. Um, but, uh, while I was watching this, um, I didn't uh, I didn't look at IMDb first, so I didn't know who was in it. And, um, again, pleasantly surprised to see Ringo Starr. And um, I will say this. Uh, I have seen Ringo Starr, I think, other than seeing, you know, maybe some of the old Beatles movies, which were just kind of like a romp of them running around. And, um, the only thing I, I'm not sure, but I'm thinking maybe Caveman. You know, I'm uh, embarrassed to say I still have not seen that. I've never seen Caveman. And it was, I remember it being on in the cinemas um, back, back in my childhood or, or, or teenage years or whenever it was um, and you know I mean, there was an opportunity to see Barbara Bach and, and to see Ringo yeah. I mean why wouldn't you want to do that but I did not why wouldn't you I don't know maybe because <laughs> I, I didn't speak cavemanese and there was no promise of, of subtitles or something Ugh. Um, anyway um, Ringo uh, I will say this uh, and you know in, in the movie uh, Caveman uh, one of the the things of it was it's there was no really dialogue other than ugh or whatever uh, and it was kind of a, a, a just a, a comedy but he really impressed me in this um, he's not the lead character David Essex is the uh, protagonist but Ringo is, has a has a pretty big part and he does a very good job I I um, you know one thing about it was just getting to see Ringo. Yes. And he's still pretty young in this movie, and he looks good. And and um, you know, like I said, he did he did a good job. Now, I other than um, uh, I guess the song "Rock On," right? I don't uh, because I live in Amorica. Um, I didn't know that much about David Essex. Well, look, you know, living in this side of the world, and David Essex, as I recall, was quite popular down here as well and yet apart from rock on i mean i don't really I, I probably couldn't have mentioned much else of what he'd done the only other thing that i uh, only record that i actually have him on was um i don't know if you're familiar with uh, the jeff wayne production war of the worlds the the musical adaptation which had you know rich richard burton um, and <laughs> it was sort of like a, a, a disco version of, uh, or not disco, but he'd gone and composed this music to tell the story. It wasn't quite a rock opera as such, although there was songs, but there was a lot of music while uh, Richard Burton narrated uh, the, the story and um, uh, David Essex played a part. It, it really deviated a lot from the from the book, but uh, it was just an excuse. It seems to, to be, from what I could tell, kind of a, a pop uh, a pop star who kind of transcended, like, uh, it, you know, he, he's been in, I assume, TV and movies and, and uh, you know, had some, some hit uh, rock slash pop songs. Um, I, I don't, for, I, this may not be a good analogy, but for some reason I wanted to say to compare him to like David Cassidy. But uh, I think David Cassidy was pretty pretty famous just for the TV show, but he did have a, a, a pretty big uh, career as a pop singer. Um, 
But now while watching this movie, uh, I don't know why. I wonder if they thought, hey, hmm, Morris might watch this movie one day. So let's put some really fa- a couple of really famous drummers in this. And what was that other drummer that's in this? I can't remember what his name is. Uh, 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 Planet or... M- Meath Coon or something like that. Yeah, it's yeah. A, yeah, something like that. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, we get to see uh, Keith Moon, uh, and that was another surprise because, uh, as we said in our in our in my in my morbid entry into this podcast, uh, somebody that we lost way too soon, and when you see him in this, he just looks like I mean, all film becomes a time capsule. And uh, Keith Moon would actually be, you know, older than I am, but in this, he's forever, you know, he's forever immortal, and he looks like a, a kid to me. Um, well, actually, I was going to say that's the thing. He, at least in terms of um, how he looks, I mean, he would have been about, oh, I don't know, thirty-two or, or something right. like that when. Oh, hang on, he was about 33 when he died, so maybe he was late 20s, but because of um, all the, uh, uh, what do we call the medication that, right. he, was, that he was taking, um, he, he looked considerably older than uh, than what he was, I'd say. He, he looked like in his you know, mid-40s or something like right. that, at least. Well, it, it just depended. Uh, like, there were times where when you saw his face because uh, he, he has, like, a couple of teeth missing in this one, right. uh, or at least one, yeah. Um because you know he wasn't taking care of himself for some reason there there were several uh, musicians that uh, I don't know if they thought it was cool uh, but like Joe Strummer you know started letting his teeth rot out of his head uh, but anyway and, I, th- and that's I think the same. Um, but Shane McGowan of the Pogues took that to ridiculous extent <laughs> I like my teeth <laughs> you know the, 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 man, the man that dental hygiene forgot Yes, Ugh. but you know, when, when, uh, speaking of that, you know, uh, Mr. Starkey in this movie, like I said, he looks so young. But I mean, he had to be because okay, if this was seventy-three, yeah, Ringo. I mean, you know, he was uh, in he his was thirty-three. Teens. He was thirty-three yeah. making this film, yeah. But the but, thing is, but maybe he looks it's just like a teddy I'm, boy all over again. Yeah, but I, I think what it is, and I told somebody this the other day. Uh, uh, the older you get, uh, it used to be, it was hard for me when I reached a certain age to tell how old somebody was, but now I'll see like a, a, a local female newscaster or something, and she's very attractive, but I'll just be like, God, she looks like a baby to me. Mm-hmm. And that's like Ringo here, he might have been 33 years old, but because I'm you know, 15 years older than that, he looks like a baby to me. You know? Yeah, yeah, He's, yeah. So um, he must have had a, like a, a hell of a lot of fun though doing this because yeah. you know, this was uh, he, he'd been through he'd been through a lifetime of experience within right. you know, eight nine short years with the Beatles and already had done you know a couple of years of um, uh, being out in the big world on his own as it were uh, and, and here and he was he, he was like going back to like eleven or twelve years prior yeah. when the Beatles were doing it tough in uh, in Hamburg and in Liverpool. Well, he seemed—he's always seemed like you know a pretty good-natured guy, uh, and so I, I think that—and um, that's one thing about this movie too—is it would be so easy for it would have been so easy for them to say, "Okay, you're going to play a musician, or you're going to play the drummer, or something." And he doesn't. He—he's more of the uh, 
you know, uh, becomes kind of like the best friend, confidant, as much as you could be to Jim McLean. Uh, uh, but now Jim, uh, he sort of, uh, I don't know if I would say in a loaf-like fashion, uh, sort of has some daddy issues. Uh, his father is a bit of a twat. Uh, I probably can't say that, but, um, anyway, that, (laughs) as, as it does to most of us, uh, you know, your upbringing, good or bad, uh, molds you, and it certainly does mold Jim. And Jim is, of course, David Essex, and you and and he, uh, you see, actually a, a lot of the things that uh, he witnessed and or didn't have in his life from his father throughout both of these movies. You know, if you want to psychoanalyze why he does a lot of the stuff he does, right? Uh, but this movie starts out, you know, literally you have just a few moments where you see Jim as a child and, and what happens with his with his dad. But then we we kind of go through it's a coming of age movie because you see him uh, progress, especially they, they show that a lot through his dealings with, with uh, the fairer sex. And uh um, from the awkward stage of you know not knowing what to do and and being shy and bashful to then becoming you know he he gets he he learns the game and he becomes proficient at the game and uh, um, he he seems to be kind of a you know an adventurous spirit where um he doesn't want to settle. He doesn't want to just, there's something in him that says, you know, I don't want to just be uh, a regular bloke who just is, you know, uh, doing a regular jo- nine to five job, uh, wife, kids, blah, 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 blah. And uh, so he decides to kind of rebel and <laughs> it's it's funny because it almost sounds like a cliche. The boy that runs off to the circus. Yes, yes. And he and he sort of does that. He ran a fair circus carnival or whatever, and uh, that's where he meets uh, Mister Mister Star, Mister Ringo, mm. uh, and um, he he kind of gets an a bit of an education. Uh, uh, kind of a, a pays his dues, if you will, the school of hard knocks, and uh, he 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 knocks knocks he he teaches some girls the school of hard knocks too. He, he does uh, goes to he, he, the knock shop. Yeah, the, the knock shop, mm. and uh and and uh the, uh, there's this caravan over here. Yes, <laughs> I money to, to to put people in there, and you know, the, 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 so they can knock about. Um, but I, I love that each girl uh, gives the standard line of before before the deed is done. They they have this a certain amount of resistance. Promise and they, you won't tell anyone. Yes, you promise you won't tell anyone. <laughs> and I, I just expected him eventually to say, "Yeah, I want to tell everybody," <laughs> just to see how they would react. You know. Yeah. Uh, but he becomes quite the swordsman. Um, now there was. I, I, I think isn't the word the coxman or something like that. Yes, yes, of course. But yeah, I didn't this, want to this, a, this is a family podcast. Yeah, it's a family podcast. <laughs> um, 
There was one scene that I wanted to get your opinion on uh, that had to do with him and Elidy. And um, was he, uh, was there almost a, or let's just, let, 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 let me just say, did you feel in one scene that he raped a girl yes. and or, yes. uh, and then also there was a question of uh, her the, the legal age, you know? Well, that's that's the thing, you see, because in, in the scene that you're talking about, which is where he rapes a girl, like I think in the bushes near the carnival where he's working at, and from... Uh, from the angle that they shot it at, and because it was dark in the distance and all that, I actually thought it was the carnival owner's wife. But it's not until like later on when he's talk- talking with Aringa, I like the grapes, um, where where, um, where he, he makes the accusations. He says, "If, if Gona raped someone who's underage," or, or, or words to that effect, and then I, uh, it, it, realize- he, the the one thing that got me there was. Um, it showed the, almost the, the the selfishness of him and how I don't know if I want to say he was becoming or had become a sociopath. I don't think he had got that far, but it, he was his whole thing was uh, you know like any boy once you reach puberty and you start thinking about girls and you want to get with them you want to get with them and they're playing their little games and the frustration and everything but then he starts to like I said where he uh, develops his rap he, he learns how to play the game he becomes very proficient at it and then but all but the only thing he's concerned about is his own selfish needs and the situation comes up where no means no, but for him, it was just kind of like, you know, I don't give a shit. You know, I'm going to do this anyway. But the, the the thing that got me the most about the wasn't the actual scene where it happened because it wasn't anything like really brutal. It was just kind of like, oh, this is really kind of crappy. But um, was the scene after where he, where Ringo, who was sort of uh, he was supposed to be a little bit older, right? Than than McLean. Yep, yep. Uh, and uh, more experienced, even though he sort of, in some ways, was full of hot air. He would uh, he would say things, and you know, like he was the the the, the coxman. But uh, oh, my, my bird's name is Sandra. What do you think of Sandra? She looks like Sandra D. <laughs> uh, but anyway. Um, the one thing that got me there was uh, even even uh, and I keep saying Ringo, but it's Mike. Uh, but I'll still say Ringo because then you'll know who it is. Yeah. Um, uh, the the listeners, the people listening out there to the show. Um, uh, when he when Mike found out what happened, he was uh, visually disappointed and disturbed and kind of disgusted by it. Right. And his reaction was, you know, why don't you pick on somebody your own size? And I think that when he said that, that maybe McLean, um, I don't know, I, I, I kind of thought, you know, he didn't expect that reaction. 
But then I wanted to almost say, you know, maybe that affected him that he saw that that even uh, Ringo was kind of like this. That's bullshit. But I don't think it did. I think he was just kind of like, yeah, screw you, you know. Uh, I can get what I want. And I'm just, you know, he was just kind of like a, a shark, like a, you know, just going out and just gobbling up whatever he could. Well, l- let me ask. Let me ask you this because we've already sort of gone and uh, you know, uh, stated that basically for all intents and purposes. Uh, Jim McLean, the David Essex character, is um, uh, he's a real narcissist, and yeah. you think yeah, that yeah, yeah. the the, the um, first three four minutes of the film where his father has come back from the war, and that, that, that basically everything that you need to know about Jim McLean can be explained in these four minutes. You know, the the father's come back from World War Two, he goes back to work in the family shop, and he's surrounded by you know. Uh, it, the dull stereotype British local town gossip. Oh, he's such a lovely boy. You know the sort of who, who, <laughs> the, the Monty Python team did so well, and he realizes, you know, I just fought for king and country, and for what? You know, and he decides he's going to leave uh, his newborn son. He and, doesn't want anything to do with the country. No, no. He, he, what? What did Billy, <laughs> Billy Connolly? I think once said, "Oh, I'm Billy Connolly. I want. I put the tree back into country music because he, <laughs> it was a family audience, you know." Um, anyway, yeah, where, where were we going? Where are we going with this? Oh, yes. Yeah, so basically, it, he's gone and set up everything um, about Jim's character, but of course, Jim now has the added advantage that it's uh, fifteen. Like, let's say this is all taking place 1959, 1960. Sorry, 14, 15 years. After the war has ended, so there's not—it's not the the rationing uh, as much of the rationing that had to go on straight after the war, um, and basically, you know, the the kids of of uh, that age, and maybe you know, having continued into into our age, have um, you know, they've got all this uh, financial freedom and. Uh, they basically they they're told you know war is over you can all you need to think of is yourself and his father's already gone and set that pattern I'm leaving home because this is bullshit and every opportunity that Jim McLean has to leave something he he, he does you know he he leaves school before you know, doing final exams yeah. he leaves his mother to go work at the holiday camp he leaves uh, Ringo to be bashed by you know these hoons you know a couple of scenes after Ringo goes and gives them the dust off and he leaves he, he does another bit of leaving which we'll get into later on because it's a spoiler um, and you know, we should probably work our way up to the spoiler but yeah anyway so the, do you do you tend to think that those first four or five minutes of the film set up for everything that or well, basically the, the, the the way that the story writer has gone and made it here is he wants to say, well, Jim McLean is a bastard, but this is the reason why. Or do you think, you know, it's, it's coincidental or he would have been a bastard anyway? I, I, my personal opinion is, is, uh, I, I don't necessarily think he would have been one anyway. I, I, I do believe that, uh, you know, that you're a uh, a product of of what you see and of your upbringing. I think that um, there are certain things that I mean, you know, there's certain things that can scar you and stick with you and and push you in a certain direction. And all your life, you know, you make those same stupid mistakes just because you know daddy didn't pat you on the head or whatever, right. you know. But um, 
He's a dick. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> One way that hey, no, no matter no matter what the reason, uh, there's times in the movie where um, He's not just... Uh, he has charisma, for one thing. So, I mean, because that's the thing with, with someone like him, a, a narcissistic person like this, um, they they develop... It's almost like a Ted Bundy thing, like I said, with a, you know, to the extreme of being a sociopath, yes. where you... you uh, if, if he wasn't charismatic, he wouldn't be able to do the things that he does. So, they're, even for us, the viewer, the guy isn't just a flat-out... Uh, unlikable jerk who, because, you know, then it would be so easy to be like, oh, you know, w- w- the whole movie, you would just think, you know, what a wanker. But you do he, that so well. Gash. Yeah. Uh, but he, he is, he, there, there seems like, I don't know if it's part of his gimmick or part of his whatever, his a certain je ne sais quoi, uh, that he has that even the viewer, when I was watching it, there were times where I thought, okay, he's not so bad. Maybe he is, you know, maybe he's just misunderstood. Uh, he's looking, you know, he's, he's just a, he's just, uh, a free spirit or whatever. But no, he's a dick. Anyway, um, <laughs> throughout the movie, uh, like I said, uh, when, before we went on air, I think, uh, I was talking about how when I was much younger, uh, my parents had grown up in the 50s and, uh, like my, both my parents graduated high school in like 1960. Uh, so I, we had a lot of this music around the house, uh, except for the Who song, which I have no idea how that got played in the 1950s, but, uh, <laughs> Long Live Rock. Yes. Uh, and when they were playing that, I was thinking, that's the Who, and then I started actually questioning my own knowledge and thinking, well, when the Who did it, were they just redoing somebody? And no, they just put it in there. But um, there's I mean, a it's, lot it's of not, music. It's not a Who. It's not a Who version. It is. Or I'm, I'm sure. I mean, I'm sure that's Mooney drumming on the soundtrack. But the, I think yeah. they used. Um, I, I think I've read. Uh, was it Dave Edmonds, or, or was he maybe in the second film? But they. they he was in the second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so anyway, oh, but but they did, the, the nice thing was they had um, uh, Billy Fury, who was singing mm-hmm. there, who was like a uh, a bona fide teen idol sensation in in Britain in the in the early '60s. Who I think sort of you know with the with the Beatles coming along and and the Stones coming along and you know, the, the whole groups songwriting groups being the focus of uh, uh, the British teenagers' attention um, and, and a little bit less focus on um, a, a pretty face. Up front, and I, I sort of like his appearance in the film. Um, certainly, before what happens in in Stardust with Jim McClane taking over, right? Uh, but I like his appearance in the film, where you know he, he sort of fancies himself as you know this big teen idol sensation, and right. he's maybe taken Billy Fury, you know, the actor, is taking the piss out of him sort of by playing this part so <laughs> over so over the top, and yet it's you know sort of a bit of a sad indictment. You know where his character is really eventually headed, right? Now, one the one thing I noticed about this movie was um, I the, the because it's it's a, a progression or a coming of age movie. You see McLean changing, right? There uh, from from a, a schoolboy, and then you know 
the time in the carnival. The, uh, I thought it was funny because there were several times when, when he would look a certain way at the camera. I thought he, he sort of looked a little bit like Billy Zane. And then when he went to the carnival and he was kind of a shaggy, uh, more of a... Um, I don't. I don't want to say a hood, but I mean he. He grew his sideburns, and his hair was. He was a little bit more unkempt, and uh, and uh, I thought he he almost had a look like uh, Paul Lamatt from uh, uh, American Graffiti, uh, John Milner. Oh yeah. Uh, just a, just a little bit. Um, but uh, the one girl that was the the, the girl that Ringo. Uh, fancied uh, of the two girls, Sandra. Who oh, she looks like Sandra D. Uh, <laughs> boy, she was pretty. She had she had really really pretty eyes. Uh, I don't know who played her because I was lazy and didn't write it down. Deborah Watling. But she was pretty hot, and uh, you know he he gave it his all uh, <laughs> very quickly. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're saying he was he was quickly spent. Yes, but uh, the the one thing about this movie was I I I kind of thought from where it was going that you know it seemed like uh, they played you know like I said they played a lot of fifties music and then and then sort of st- started uh, you know uh, you saw the the music progressing the different style of music and the, um, Jim going them, them how music whether it was on the radio or whether they were going to a dance or whether they were at the fair and they would be playing music in the background at the bumper cars or whatever, there was this music, 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 music. Well, well and that's, that's hit- definitely a feature, I guess, of um, films of you know, uh, that period or, or talking about that period. More so. You wouldn't necessarily have... Uh, a film, you know, set like a, a costume drama where you always have the music there to remind you when the movie is set. But when there's a chance that there are people who are watching for nostalgic reasons, right, we're going to play a lot of music like they did in American Graffiti, I guess, right. um, to sort of say, hey, um, we need to constantly remind you this is this took place back in you know, 58, 59. But uh, really, I think you know, rock and roll films in particular have made that... Um, very much a feature of how they're uh, of how they're driven, and, and and the music for me is just uh, it, it's a joy to listen to because, like I said, I kind of grew up listening to my mom and dad's records, and it's it was just a different time where you didn't have you know uh, that's one thing I was thinking when I watched this was you know instead of uh, them sitting in front of a computer or or listening to a podcast or or whatever or sitting in front of the TV watching their uh, their Roku or their Netflix or something like that, they were going out to a, a sock hop or a dance or right. going to a fair and having this social interaction and everything. It was kind of cool uh, to see that, that uh, you know, we're, we're missing out on a lot of that stuff th- these days, I think. Um, let's see. You kind of, like I said, you, you see... How you see Jim uh, going through these stages? Uh, you can just almost like look at his hair and see how his hair right. changes with the, you know from uh, like a, either whether it's a duck tail and sideburns or getting it cut shorter or having a mod cut or whatever. I think it's even uh, probably more pronounced in the second film. Yeah, definitely. Well, yeah. Um, I took notes here, by the way. <laughs> Something I never do on my own show. Um, I, 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 he, I'm flattered. 
<laughs> yes. I don't want to be caught with my pants down. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have the camera on. <laughs> I think that um, it was kind of a shitty thing when, uh, you know, I, I think if I saw one of my pals getting, uh, uh, you know, beaten on as bad as Ringo was getting beat up. Yep. Uh, that, uh, especially if I was a carny and, you know, I knew where some tools were, I might grab like a big wrench and at least run into the pack and start swinging to, to give him some relief so they don't like kill him. And this bastard just kind of like, uh, I thought he was running for help. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. And in, in reality, know, there was something else going on, and it's like, God, what a, you know, whatever. Anyway, <laughs> I don't give everything away. Um, it was kind of cool seeing how Jim, um, he, he liked the freedom, and he fell right into the whole, uh, you know, carny thing of, uh, you know, you're looking for, you know, everything's a con and, uh, you know, you're, you're taking money from the marks and, uh, he, he became proficient at it. But then when his past life catches up to him, he's, he's, all he's seeing is the life that he has now through, through his own selfish eyes. And he's like, Hey, I'm content with this. You know, I'm banging chicks and I'm, you know, ripping off the, the the marks, and you know it's simple, and I don't care. But then, uh, only until people from his past life, whether it's his mom or his friends from school, and he sees how they're doing, and he thinks he's going to go, and uh, you know, well, I'm doing this at the carnival. I'm picking up all these chicks, so I can just go to these rich, you know college chicks and I'll just do the same thing and they just look at it like it doesn't, you know. doesn't work okay, I, I was going to make I've got a, a, a note here that I've made I wanted to as long as you've gone and brought this up um, okay so basically even though in particular the first film isn't a music story per se but the music and the culture associated with it uh, really do play an important part so you know rock and roll I mean, besides being a, a, a slang term for sex, is really yeah. in this film in particular. You know, it represented excitement, um, and you know, while listening to all this rock and roll, you know, he, he was um, really his libido was running high, and you know, uh, Jim and Jim and uh, Mike, aka Ringo, um, you know, we're we're, we're 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 getting their rocks off with Sandra, and uh, you don't remember. Um, um, Jim's bird, but it was all to rock and roll in the background. And then there's the scene that you're referring to, where um, I've forgotten the character's name, but um, Jim's uh, old school chum comes to visit him and bring him his records and stuff like that, and takes him out to like a, a, a local dance. He's met a couple of girls, and um, uh, but the dance that he's taken him to more befitting his conservative view of life is trad jazz and all these people uh, you know, I, I think it, it's no accident you know the music there trad jazz which is what you know the the generation of uh you know, most kids growing up had gone and rejected that sort of thing right you know, it's you know rock and roll was exciting rock and roll represented 
sex it represented rebellion it rep- you know unlike you know what we now call rock and roll it doesn't re- represent any rebellion it's just another part of the business but back then it represented um, something different to what your parents listened to and yet these kids uh, uh, well, <coughs> excuse me um, Jim's friend from school who's doing university like his parents had hoped he would um, takes him to this trad jazz dance and there you know Jim comes trying to say I'll, I'll work I'll work at the carnival and and oh I'm, but it's really an excuse to write a book so he's trying both yeah. he's trying to be you know the the James Dean I don't give a shit and when he sees that that doesn't work then he tries to impress them with um, you know, their own lines. Say, oh, but you know, in fact, actually, I'm writing a book, you know, and they're not, buying, <laughs> they're not buying, they're not buying either line. But so I, I, I like the fact that this is not unlike, um, you know, rock and roll high school, say, for instance, or that thing you do. Uh, this is not a film about the music, but music still is very central right. to the story. And although Stardust in Stardust music um, is very much more a part right. of that film. Well, I thought that when uh, I expected that this was going somewhere, and then I looked at the timer on my uh, my player, and I was like, "My God, there's only 15 minutes left." I thought he was going to do, you know, something. Uh, or you know something was going to happen, but then you see more of that. That's I, I, I in the in the sequel, which is the second movie we're going to be covering. But he, um, I, I I like the the way that the move that the movie does use the music and everything. The one thing that I see through both of these movies is uh, when I'm when I was watching them. Watching them, um, I you know I, I, for me now maybe I mean you know there there are certain things that seem like they're they have a definite transparent um, influence. I'm like okay, now wait a minute, is this part? Are they? Is he kind of being like? Uh, uh, are, are they kind of? Well, that, I, that's more for the second movie. Uh, 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 as far as the the, the different parts of the storyline, uh, I could almost say, okay, now they're doing this, which is this person from you know rock and roll, uh, or I when they're when they're up there doing this, they they seem like okay, this is this group or whatever. But like I said, that that's that's more for the second movie. I think that's what we're going to get. This one is 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 more. Just like I said, just kind of like a coming of age movie of, of a guy who's kind of a shithead uh, because he is immature, he is selfish, but he's self centered. A charismatic shithead. Yeah, charismatic shithead. Uh, but um, in it, I at first and when when uh, I watched this movie, I did not know that the second movie I because I had I didn't look up anything about either one of them. I just watched this one. And that's why at the end of this one, I was like, oh, I was kind of, you know, uh, I liked that movie, but I, it, it, I thought something was, it was leading somewhere. And then when I put the the, 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 the second movie, I'm like, oh, this is a sequel. <laughs> right. Okay, this this is what I was expecting. And then it's, you know, so. All right. Well, so probably what we should do is actually sort of make mention. Um, well, okay. Before we get to um, where the film heads, I'll, I'll just 
make note of a couple of points because um, we're talking about, you know, okay, his character and he's being this shithead and this charismatic shithead. Now, I think probably two films that we can compare the Jim McClane character to is um, uh, Alex in A Clockwork Orange because, once again, we've got this uh, narcissistic character who, if he wasn't charismatic then really the film would be over in five minutes. We want to watch what happens to, to Alex in A Clockwork Orange, and maybe even if you feel a little bit guilty for feeling sorry for him at that part of the film where, you know, he's um, he's had all his um, free will taken away from him and he's being beaten up by previous victims and he looks very sorrowful and pathetic and he's... he's you almost feel sorry, and then you feel guilty for feeling sorry for him, and he's very charismatic. But probably... Um, an even better example of someone to compare him to and, it, and once again in a, in, a, in a British film I should probably contrast between the American way of looking at these sorts of characters in the British way but it would be Quadrophenia um, yeah, I was just going to say that well I mean, yeah. we, we already got um, okay so in, in a quite superficial way uh, that'll be the day uses uh, long live rock in, in the soundtrack, and Long Live Rock was basically the seed for what became Quadrophenia. Um, but more relevant to the story, um, okay, so the, the lead character in Quadrophenia, also called Jimmy, is a guy who rebels against absolutely everything, but unlike Jim McLean, you know, we, it, it's a little bit, I wouldn't say vague, but you know, that'll be the day it gives you an answer straight away. Jim's going to turn out to be a, a, a prick because he's going to leave everyone because his father's already gone and set the pattern. His father left him, so Jim's going to leave everyone and he's only going to look after himself. Um, so really, Jimmy the Mod in Quadrophenia is just doing what he does because, well, he's a teenager and you know he's got he's got a he's got a few dollars in his pocket and he he he, he can buy all the pills that he wants and listen to the Who and do whatever he wants, but. Um, the, the, where the difference between the two stories is that uh, Jim in That'll Be The Day, he's, he's circumstances around him disappoint him, but he's always got himself. He is an island, and he's going to desert everyone and everything when he sees fit. If he doesn't like what's around him, well, he's just going to turn inward and adapt to the way how he wants to do things. Whereas in Quadrophenia, everything that Jim, Jimmy the Mod looked up to and respected ends up disappointing him. So yeah, he's, he's, he comes home to mummy and daddy, of course, when things go wrong on the outside. But once again, they disappoint him and uh, the, the mods disappoint him uh, and the Sting character, the, the ace face, oh, disappoints oh, him. Oh, oh. Um, we should have another sing-along in there. Um, <laughs> yeah, never mind I have a tiger. You ought to have bellboy as your karaoke tune, I think. Um, <laughs> that's next time. Uh, I'm too lazy to pick the next one. So, in Quadrophenia, Jimmy the Mod decides, right, everything I've ever known, the, 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 the music has disappointed me, the mods have disappointed me, everyone's disappointed me, and he just, that's when he thinks, right, I'm, I'm tossing, tossing the bike overboard, and that's the metaphor for him going to start whatever new life he's going to take whatever that's going to be but that takes place after the final credits uh, in this in this film um, Jim 
always believes in himself. He doesn't rely on believing on other people. It's just, what can I do to get myself some tail? What can I do to keep myself going? It's, you know, his only things are his libido and rock and roll. So the next part of the story uh, is, you know, he, he, he even okay. So he gets a pang of conscience. Uh, you know, this this bit where he, he goes up to this girl's apartment, you know, just another notch on his belt. Uh, he decides he's going to um, have, have sex with this girl. He's picked up at the uh, at the carnival, only to find out when he gets up into her apartment, she's got a little baby that's crying. She's gone and left the apartment to go out and have fun while leaving this little baby on, on its own. And it, even for Jim, that's, that, that's just too much for him to take. So he decides, right... Probably very quickly in story terms, he just goes back home and decides he's going to give domesticity and responsibility a try. And he decides, even though they're all suspicious, his mother's suspicious, he decides, right, I'm going to run the shop and I'm going to buy a car and I'm going to do all these things and I'm going to uh, marry um, my teenage... Uh, this, teen, uh, this girl who I knew when I was a teenager who I always sort of fancied. And I... I'm sure I've seen her somewhere, but I, uh, Rosalind Ayres, I know I've seen her in something or uh, someone who looks like I can't picture where. But, um, you know, he decides to try domesticity. They even get married. Of course, he he fucks her best friend the night before the wedding, who just happens to be, I think, the sister of his best friend. It's his last day of freedom, man. Last day of so, Last day of freedom. Everybody will understand. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and, and uh, of course, his best friend says, "I'm his. You've got to tell me what's going on. I'm his best friend, and awesome. And and I don't trust him. I don't trust him. You don't have to marry him. You don't have to marry him. No, he's he's changed. He's, so, uh, of course, the, the call of the wild, this domesticity. He's he's living what his father did in the first few minutes. He's come back. Basically, his time at the carnival was his time at the war. And now he's come back and he's tried the shop and he's tried to please his mother and he's right, no. So, you know, uh, uh, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, he he ditches his, his wife, ditches his son and the last moment of the film, which is what left you confused as to where it was going to go, as Jim walking into a, into a uh, guitar shop. Paying his money and getting a, uh, a bass guitar off the wall, and he decides, right, I'm going to be all right, and that's it. End of, end of. Um, that'll be the day. And I'd, I'm sure they would have decided then and there. You know, if if um, this is big, we already know we're going to make a sequel. We're going to know where the story goes. And I, 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 we forgot to mention um, uh, the director for this one was um, a guy called Claude Waitham. I don't know what else he's done. Uh, but the writer uh, was a guy called Ray Connolly, who I'm pretty sure had gone and written uh, a biography, I'm not sure it was of the Beatles or of John Lennon. It's been suggested that this film is loosely based on Lennon's life. You know, Lennon, father deserted him and becomes you know, hell-bent on... You know, he, he, he gets his, he gets his uh, uh, girlfriend knocked up early, marries her, but then proceeds to ignore her, uh, and he lives the rock and roll. Yeah, another shithead. Um, <laughs> but he, he, uh, he, wrote a, a he wrote a few good uh, songs, mind you. I know a certain Canadian that cannot stand John Lennon. 
because of his uh, shithead uh, shit I guess maybe right. uh, with uh, his children. Right. Um, I remember reading um, uh, in, in this Beatles biography. Um, the, the, you know that you know Lennon had his. Uh, what was called the 18-month long weekend where Yoko Ono said, I'm setting you free, Get go get your wild oats out of your system, and then we'll talk. And, you know, he was... In, Is that uh, when he killed Trotsky? Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. Yeah, that's when he killed Trotsky. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's never been proved. I had to throw that in there. <laughs> um, and that was another off-the-air... Uh, reference, of course, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, or, 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 yeah, that, that's, yeah you're going with your communist ways. Um... <laughs> Where were we going? Oh, hey, that's right. I, something I don't understand. I think commie. Yeah, that's yeah, just yeah. A- oh, you liberal pinko. Um, uh, where he, so, so Lennon, Lennon was in, um, like in some bar, and he'd gotten himself wildly drunk, hanging out with Harry Nilsson and Keith Moon and all those types. And he just, he was, you know, from all reports, a nasty, nasty drunk. And interviewed late he made a big scene and smashed and broke up things and the waitress at this bar had, was reported as saying uh, I think she'd been hit and she said it's not the pain that hurts it's knowing that one of your idols is a real asshole um, yeah so you know but in the end I mean you know, really you could argue that in the end they put in their pants the same way we do but then again you could also ask answer but yeah but he wears million dollar pants yeah, he makes gold records. Yeah, exactly. Records. So anyway, so this this film, yeah, the, the, I, I guess there is a lot to sort of compare between Jim McLean's behaviour and uh, Lennon's behaviour, but you know, less focus on the music. But having said that, a lot of the stuff that comes out of the radio and, and in the background, you know, it's it's a great soundtrack. But I think it's I'm wondering if song for song, it's um. Uh, you know, the same soundtrack as American Graffiti. Uh, I I uh, I've thought about uh, writing down you know each song that they played. Yes. But then I, I'm on this new kick where I ride my gazelle exercise thingy while I'm watching <laughs> movies. Yes. Uh, so I'm actually getting exercise while instead of sitting on my on my arse and. Um, uh, so I couldn't write anything down, but uh, I was, was going to say, did your did your list come out very shaky? It was very shaky, <laughs> very very shaky. Mm. Um, it, but uh, some good tunes on there. I don't know. Did, I don't know if they actually have a soundtrack for this. You know what? Movie. There 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 is a soundtrack, but I don't know that it's ever been uh, released on CD. But I, I, like over the years, I've seen it on uh, vinyl and secondhand record shops and. Um, I mean, it'd be good to have that, regardless of whether it's that or whether it's just a general. Because I, I've, you know, what I'm embarrassed. I've got you know a lot of stuff in the '60s onwards, but I don't think I have. I mean, apart from you know uh, maybe blues stuff, you know, uh, blues artists or, or jazz artists, but I don't think like I have a good um, uh, all all purposes rock and roll compilation right. of you know songs. Songs from that era. I mean, you know, I got you know, I, you know, I got the Buddy Holly sort of stuff because you know he's always been a hero to me, and uh, I've got some. Um, uh, I'm trying to think who else. You know, Alan Toussaint, I guess, was more more '60s stuff really than '50s. But um, but yeah, it, it'd be good to have an old-fashioned sort of uh, uh, compilation like this. But I know there's been a lot of CDs that have come out over the years where you know because the, the rights have gone. 
uh, into the public domain and anyone mm-hmm. can just put out anything nowadays. So there might be like a CD, say, songs influenced by That'll Be The Day soundtrack or something like that. So that you, you can probably get a lot of that sort of stuff uh, quite reasonably. And, and uh, the beauty of a lot of those compilations is they tend to dig up a lot more obscure stuff. I mean, all the famous stuff was in this. You, right. know, you, you mentioned before Fats Domino and... And you know, we've already gone and spent, you know, Buddy Holly. Actually, one one interesting story about this was, and I don't know if it was because uh, the the copyright was too expensive, but the version that they use of That'll Be The Day, I think, over the closing credits, was it was with the crickets, but it wasn't with Buddy Holly singing. It was with um, Bobby V. So, yeah, uh-huh. Bob, Bobby V and the crickets, you know, your, your, <laughs> your favourite Buddy Holly replacement because we couldn't afford to put the original on the soundtrack. Oh well, you know you can't always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, you might. You're fine. You get what you need. Oi, oi, then. I'll just make. Uh, I've got a couple of other notes here about uh, David Essex and, and uh, Richard Starkey. I tell you, uh, for, for David Essex, not a great actor by any means, and yet he completely fits the character. He's completely vain. Um, and actually, from what I found out, it turns out that David Essex, um, in his early days, actually worked on a carnival. Um, worked worked as a carny, just like um, uh, Jim McLean did. And I think his first big break might have been um, playing as uh, Jesus in Godspell, uh, on a West End production of Godspell, so, which sort of makes me think about some stuff from um, uh, Stardust, but we'll get to that in turn. Um, I like the fact that the film sort of presents him as a bastard in a matter-of-fact sort of way. He's, he's not like the, um, the moustache-twirling villain. You, you don't... Uh, he's you more... Co-host my show? Yeah, yeah. Well, except you know, he's he's not a villain. You know, he's he's a lovely fellow, a little bit wimpy, but, you know, but um, I, I can't do that. Um, but yeah, he, he's a uh, That's I guess something that I, I guess is probably the British and the American approach are two totally different things. I know that like uh, American Graffiti, which Silver and Gold reviewed you know a few months back, um, which is another film I absolutely adore, but. You know the the characters, the characters in that it's it's a lot more uh, wistful, a lot more. Um, you know, we, we're moving to an uncertain future, but you know, gosh, we'll always have this night. We'll always have our teenage years, and you know, they're not perfect. It doesn't present them as perfect. Well, whereas admit, this is a lot more just gritty. Just admit right now to your audience that you want to be a pharaoh. So that I want to be a pharaoh. A pharaoh? Yeah, oh, the, oh, the, the, oh, the, the pharaoh. No, no, no. Uh, not <laughs> the pharaoh. You know you want to be a pharaoh. The pharaoh. No, uh, you know what? I, I, I want to be, um, I want to be um, um, uh, uh, Wolfman Jack. There you go. That's who, that's who I want to be. Is he the pharaoh? He was, uh, I, 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 well, I'll get it. I was just going to start talking about American Graffiti, how everybody thought uh, Wolfman Jack was this great thing, and then he's just working out in this little crappy... Radio station right outside of town. Yeah, I'm sure. They, I'm, I'm sure they stole that that um, line in um, uh, was it, uh, Wayne's World too. You know, they 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 think that that radio announcer you know, he's, he's going to be completely studly and buff. And when they go to meet him, he turns out he's just this little Weasley guy's losing his hair and his you know, 
70 years old or something like that. Um, but yeah, yeah, but, well, I mean, I, I you know, to, although, mind you, I'd say that Wolfman Jack is considerably cooler than that, but as you say, yeah. he's, just, he's just this realistic guy, I'm just selling an image, and you're listening to the songs, and I'm just here playing the songs for you, I'm not, I'm not a god, I'm just, I'm just a guy playing some... Hey, Billy, seven. super sound of the 70s. <laughs> We're playing another Dylan, Dylan-esque bubblegum pop. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Let's make some more references. Uh, some I think, well, references. well, it is a, it is a film show. Um, well, no, it's not. But uh, anyway, so I'm I, I'm wondering. I'm not sure whether Essex was already uh, like a, a recording star. I mean, he'd already sort of like gotten famous, I guess, from his production in the West End of, uh, of Godspell. But I don't know. I, my days whether Rock On had already been released, whether it was already big or or, or what. But anyway, look, I. Not, not necessarily a brilliant actor, but he was perfect for this part, and I think he did a really, really great job. I don't know if he necessarily, whether he did anything more uh, acting-wise, you know, whether he could play much else, but he was absolutely wonderful. His character was really believable, and I like the fact that, you know, it wasn't black and white. He was he just who, you know, he was this charismatic guy who was an asshole, but you could see why you might sort of trust him a little bit before, you know, getting the shit kicked out of you by a, by a ton of hoods. Um, Ringo. Um, I mean, uh, I love his acting. I really, really do. Um, uh, he, he plays, you know, I mean, okay, here he's playing the mate role. Um, that's sort of, I, I don't know, maybe the sort of the comedy relief. Oh, my bird's called Sandra. So, of course, you know, he gets the less <laughs> the less attractive of the two girls. And, uh, but, you know, but still, you know, he, once again, he, he's the mate that you really, really want to have. And, you know, when he goes and tells off um, Jim later on for what he's gone and done, uh, you see, right, he is... Uh, he's trying to be Jim's moral compass and you know, right. Jim th- thinks, well, no, sold that. Uh, I'm just going to go off and do what he was. But, but you know, even though really Ringo's gone and taught uh, Jim half the tricks that he knows, like, you know, all right. the ways of cheating the people on on the Dodgem cars uh, out, of, out of their money, which I think was the reason that he actually got the stuffing kicked out of him. Um, but he does have a moral compass and he does have his limits and really apart from the woman with the uh, 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 with the young baby in her apartment really you know, Jim has no limits it's, it's, it's just him um, but anyway look, I, I think it's that, a well you, ha- you would have to uh, to be I mean pretty bad for for as selfish and you know the way he was for you to affect him the way that that did, what that that they should have made a movie about that woman because she must have been. Uh, I mean, uh, but you know, I think that just that goes back to the whole uh, thing with his upbringing and his right. parents. But I mean, somebody that would just like, yeah, I have a I have a baby. I'll just leave him. You know, go out and dance or whatever. Right. All right. Well, look, I, I think we've pretty much um, covered all that we need to do uh, about this. Um, Oh, so actually, no. So there was one more point I wanted to make. Um, I thought it was a nice little in joke if you're a Beatles nut uh, that the band at the holiday camp where we first see Keith. And we've not spoken enough about Keith, but we can do that in the second film because he is more of a part there. But the band at the holiday camp uh, is led. Well, the Billy Fury character, his name is Stormy Tempest, and the band that the Beatles 
stole Ringo from was called Rory Storm and... Well, not Rory Storm and the Hurricanes. Rory Storm... Yeah, uh, Rory Storm and the Tempest? Or Rory Storm and the Hurricanes. Um, so Stormy Tempest, I think, was a nice little in-joke com- uh, for, for that. Um, and I, I think probably... Uh, so one other point I want to make, there was a, uh, a, a scene that looked a little bit throwaway, but it gave... Um, but it was probably, it, it, once again, if you're a, a keen student of music of the time, we're always saying that the Beatles were the group that sort of did a whole lot of firsts, and um, they showed that in England, you could be successful, you could get a recording contract, you could make yourself appealing by writing your own songs rather than covering American right. music. And there's this great line where Jim goes and sees... Uh, the band at the uh, holiday camp, you know, while they're packing their stuff in. And he says to Keith Moon, uh, his character called J.D. Clover, he asks him, um, you know, why don't you, why don't you write your own music rather than playing American covers? And he says, <laughs> and he said, no, 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 no. You've got to be American to write, which was the attitude. I mean, you really, if you didn't know that, it'd just be a bit of a throwaway sort of line. Oh, they're going to give Ringo a line. But, you know, watching that, I thought, whoa, you know, that's, that's one for the, for the music buffs, because that really was the predominant attitude at, at the time before, um, uh, the whole, uh, you know, what they, you know, the British invasion or the, right. Mer- the Mersey Beach sound. So anyway, uh, you, you have any, um, any more thing you want to add about that'll be the day? Words of wisdom. Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, all right. Well, what we'll do is we'll go, we'll go to a break and, uh, we'll come back and, um, Talk about uh, what's, I guess, a much darker story in some ways. Uh, Stardust. We'll we'll be back in a couple of minutes. Go to break, and um, uh, it'll be Doctor Zom in in West Virginia and dun, Morris, dun, dun, dun. Morris here in Melbourne. And we'll be um, back on Love That Film. Uh, love That Up. Hello, Jim. Ed Burns. Hello, Jim. I remember you from New York. Well, it's nice of you to remember. I appreciate you uh, letting us come here to your castle in Spain. It must be fantastic living here. Okay, let's go. And also for giving us permission to uh, do this very, very special show on you. What I'd like to do is show some films. So why don't you just sit down there and relax and we'll have a chat. Perhaps more than any other, the name of Jim McLean has been associated with the spirit of international youth. In the last 10 years, his career has taken him from fairground attendant to rock star. Okay, amigos, we got a show. Okay. For three years, he toured Britain and America as the lead singer in the straight cats rock group. Then almost two years ago, he performed before the largest audience in history when he presented his epic rock symphony, Dia Santa e Gloria, before a worldwide television audience. Since then, McLean has lived as a virtual recluse here in his castle in Spain. Seeing no one and being seen by no one. That is until today when we managed to persuade him to appear live before our cameras. Vamos a la uno. Good, good. Jim, in the last few years, you've been compared with some kind of a messiah. And your most famous work, Dia Santa, seems to some to be calling for the deification of women. How much does God mean to you? Somewhere between two and three million dollars. Oh, Christ. After tax. Tell me, uh... There's royalties from the records and the repeats from the television. 
Then, of course, the quarterly PRS check. Which adds a few bob. Is he crazy? He's a nutcase. Why did you ever decide to become a recluse? Recluse. Come on, Ed. Bear down, bear down. Keep after him. He's taking so long to answer. I'm not. It's Mike. Mike? Oh, yeah, that's the, uh, the fellow that lives with you here in the castle. Hmm. What's Mike's job? What does he do? It's hard to say. Well, say something. Come on, kid. Let's go. Chief balloon buster. <laughs> and we're back from break. Morris here. Zom there. And um, we're going to be talking about the follow-up film to That'll Be The Day called Stardust, which once again stars the inimitable David Essex and directed by a little fellow you might have heard of called Michael Apted, who... Um, was famous for a whole bunch of things, but uh, I don't know. In, in the states, had you seen on television um, the Seven Up series? Hmm. No, I don't think so. Well, it was a thing that uh, Michael Apted had initiated. He'd been like since seven years old. He's been interviewing. Um, he picked a group of kids. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. The, the documentaries are on yeah. Netflix Instant right now, yeah. where they. Every so many years, or whatever they, what have they been doing? Right, exactly. Every seven yeah. years, and uh, I mean, look, I, I've I've not watched much of it, but uh, I, I know, like, for every time there's a new series, it becomes absolutely compulsive viewing for you know, a number of people who I know, and it's you know certainly an interesting experiment. So he was, he was uh, behind that, and what else? What did he Coal miner's daughter. Coal miner's daughter. Gorillas in the mist. Um, Gorky Park. There's a, a film that. Um, I absolutely loved of his a really small film, but um, but real. Uh, we we're talking before you, you were saying before that that'll be the day was like a coming of age story. This really is a coming of age story, I think, but in a, in a much sweeter way. A film called Patang Yang Kippabang, and if you're, I guess it's something that really to be British and or Australian or really anyone of a um, who lives in a cricketing nation can. Uh, appeal to, but this about a uh, a young kid, uh, maybe about eleven or twelve years old, and he's you know, he's teased in class. He's you know the he's not one of the popular ones in the class, and but he lives for cricket. That's what he he loves, and um, he's been uh, he's been brought into the school play, and you know against his will. But then he finds out that um, this girl in his class, who he absolutely adores. Is oh, oh he's, got, he's got this big crush on. He gets to kiss her in the school play, and this is all set, ah. I think, during during the war. And uh, she thinks he's a dork. Uh, she's got a boyfriend, <laughs> and and all he can think of is is kissing her. But what makes the film so funny and so really lovely is he, he keeps hearing you he keep hearing over the soundtrack all this commentary, like as if it's a cricket match, but it's talking about his life and his approach to walking down the street to uh, to follow this girl who's the object of his affection. And what's nice, I guess more if you're in England, if you know that the, the guy who's doing the uh, the commentary, the pretend to- commentary, was a guy who was like a real cricketing legend commentator for the BBC back in the day. So, Patangian um, Kippur, I think it might have had a different name in some other parts of the world, but if you can look that one up, um, it's 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 just a really lovely story. Uh, Michael Apted was responsible for that one, so so that's really nice. But this was made a few years before that, Stardust, nineteen seventy four, 
And um, uh, so, yeah, let's talk a bit about that. Uh, so, yeah, the follow-up. And it's, it's, it's you know, continuing the story of Jim McLean. Uh, but it's, in a way, it's a very different beast to, to, to that'll be the day. He's, you know, at the end of the last film, he's, you know, given up this uh, pretend attempt at domestic existence to buy a guitar and follow his dream. And really, Stardust, I think it, it so we got two stories here. I think in a way, it's sort of like Jim McLean's version of the story of Faust. You know, you be careful of what you ask for. You might just get it. Um, he dreams of rock and roll fame, and when it comes, he can't really handle it. Um, and it also that seems I've heard that story before. Like, uh, uh, it seems like a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think it might have been attempted one or a thousand times. Um, isn't isn't, uh, isn't fame? Uh, you know, I thought when you got like all that money and all that fame, everything was just it, you know, it's just great. Well, it's it's made you happy, hasn't it? Um, yes. Cree, 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 Definitely, definitely Cree's there. Yes. Uh, um, my life hasn't changed uh, from all the money and fame. Uh, you know, I shan't let it affect me. <laughs> With that effect, affecting voice, of course. Yes. Bring in the caviar. Um, and it also talks about Jim's relationship with his best friend and now band manager, Mike. So basically, this is Adam Faith, uh, who is oh Ringo, is doing the Ringo role in. Um, Ooh, uh, I wonder why Ringo chose not. I mean, he they, he, they asked him to do the, the the role, and he said no. So. I I don't know why, but in a way, I think that for the the, the character, the, the micro. I mean, it's still Mike, but the way how he the, the way how Adam Faith approaches a role, or maybe the role is written, is considerably different to the Mike character in the in, yeah. in the first film. So Mike in the first film, he was really only looking for what he could do now. You know, he's he's fleecing the customers on the dodging cars, whereas really here he's fleecing uh, everyone to um, uh, for for more long term aims for for bigger fish to fry. He's you know, basically he's a uh, uh, Jim McLean's personal confidant, and he's doing whatever he has to to keep him going. And I don't think that the the Mike character in the first film really could have done that or thought beyond mm-hmm. beyond what was in the immediate future. But I do find it interesting. Uh, there, there was never any mention made, like, "Oi, you prick! Why did you leave me to be bashed up by a pack of hoods?" Um, uh, in, well, in, did, in he didn't song. really know that uh, that Jim actually uh, saw it. No, and, and Jim was never going to confess that. So I, right. I, let, let's do a little bit of a descriptor of the story here. Jim ba- uh, Jim joins a band called the Stray Cats, uh, and I'm wondering whether Brian Setzer was a fan of this film. Um, <laughs> uh, so he joins this band as an occasional singer and the bassist. Now, this band, the, the actors who they use in the band were, uh, you know, well known to the uh, British music-going public. Uh, Paul Nicholas, uh, who played cousin Kevin in uh, the film version of Tommy, uh, is, I think, the lead singer, uh, Little Johnny or whatever his name is. Um, uh, Dave Edmonds is in the band, um, and 
Chapman. He was, he was uh, he had quite a bit of a career there. And uh, Keith Moon returns uh, from with playing all of his teeth this time. With all of his teeth, um, and, and uh, he gets to use some more of that Mooney drum prowess. Um, I'd like to have seen him sort of get a few more lines in. Uh, in this one, but he certainly has more than he had in uh, That'll Be The Day. Um, so, Mike uh, wangles a he deal. He essentially is playing Keith Moon. He, he from, is. From uh, his actions and uh, craziness. And well, I mean, look, he, he, he gets a couple of moments that we'll discuss you know, shortly on where he's you know, a little bit more serious and, you know, when they when they end up reading Jim the Riot Act. Yeah, um, it, it's it's less of uh, you know Moon the caricature and and um, you know, I, I guess you know, Moon as a real person, but maybe he's acting as a real person. I don't know. Um, so uh, Mike, at, or played by Adam Faith this time round, uh, wangles a deal using financial sponsorship from a laundry magnate. Uh, the band records, gets popular. Jim gets more attention than Johnny as lead singer who gets evicted from the band. And actually, did you notice um, that any time that someone gets evicted from the band or from within this inner circle, uh, Mike puts his arm around them and says, let's go have a drink. Um, yeah. It's almost like uh, the mafia when they send a friend uh, to, to do you in, you know, the, the, so, the, so that you won't be suspicious. Ah, let's go have a talk. Let's have a talk, yes, yes. Let's so, go have a, a cup of coffee or something, and then they never come back. <laughs> I, I, think, I think James Gandolfini might have been a big fan of this song. Um, so, this was, okay, this is not the first or the last film about popular entertainers getting way in over their heads with the business. Um, and I should mention Larry Hagman comes into this film, which I'm sure was his role was as an apprenticeship for J.R. Ewing in this film, because yes. this is this is a long way from Tony Nelson, uh, and <laughs> uh, very, very close to J.R. Ewing, um, but Larry Hagman, uh, the band goes and makes it in America and gets the Screaming Girls, and you know, Jim McLean uh, you know, gets to be the lead singer, and it, you know, all of a sudden they've gone from being the Stray Cats to being Jim McLean and the Stray Cats. And you know, Larry takes over the band as business manager for the U.S. Um, and really, you know, we know that his character doesn't give a fuck whether you know he sells Jim McLean or hula hoops. You know, he just he wants his money and he's going to protect his investment. Uh, Mike is more a small-time operator, but you know, he thinks in a similar fashion. But unlike the Larry Hagman character, whose aim is to protect his financial investment, Mike's aim is to build up Jim's fortune and, and and to wipe the decks of anyone who gets in the way so you know really this is a maybe you know one of the early bromances if you will i mean you know is there gay tension is there is this a bromance oh this, that was all over <laughs> it's that's it um so one one common thematic element from the first film is Jim's ongoing shitty treatment of women, which I guess is more expected here because um, you know he's now a big-time rock and roll singer, and you know the groupies are going to take part. and And I got to tell you, Zom, that there were a couple of moments here which got me thinking: 
We shouldn't be doing this film for Love That Album. There was a couple of moments in there that were real silver and gold moments, and I'm sure you, <laughs> I'm sure you know the ones that I. Knew. I I whatever you mean. <laughs> well, let me let me refresh your memory. Um, Mike, there's, there's this scene uh, early on in the film where um, the stray cats are watching from the side. Uh, a, a, a girly group, like, you know, girly singing trio who are backed by their Head band. on a Monday and my heart stood still. Do do run, run, run. Do do run, run. Yeah, they had some nice shorts. They, they, I, I will did. say that. I, 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 I like their, their hairdo. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so you know, Jim and, and Mike are watching from the wings, watching them uh, sing, you know, dressed in their lovely shorts and, and their uh, revealing tops. And um, so, you know, when when, um, when David Essex, uh, uh, Jim McLean, goes on stage with the band, and he gives them that little boy look, like, you know, I'd, I'd really be happy to meet you later on for for a drink or, or to hold your hand, maybe. But you know, we we know, of course, yeah. from um, uh, what what uh, Jim McLean is really like. Uh, so, so the Beatles song "I Want to Hold Your Hand" is more or less, you know, I want to bang your. Uh, Something. Something. Well, I mean, they, really, in a way, I guess the Rolling Stones were more were more honest in that regard because, you know, the Beatles claimed that they wanted to hold your hand, but, you know, the Rolling Stones said right from the start, when, when they were singing, like, even when they did, like, the, the, the song that, you know, Lennon McCartney wrote for them, uh, I want to be your, I want to be your lover, I want to be your man, you know, when, when they sang it, as opposed to, when Ringo sang it, it was all cutesy, but when, when Mick sang it, it was, you know, with a sneer, you know, I want to be your lover, baby, I want to <laughs> be your man. Man, um, so um, uh, basically, Mike uh, secures the, um, shall we say, services of these girls uh, for for uh, you know later on refreshment in the evening for for orgiastic entertainment. But of course, <laughs> where where Mike where, where um, uh, Jim and goes and um, you know. Uh, screws Mike over, of course, you know, because Mike thinks that they're going to get one each. But you know, he goes and looks through the peephole later on and finds that you know Jim's having a bit of a, a, a three-way action uh, going on. And you know, once again, you know, Jim deserts Mike. You know, he's deserted him in the first film. It leaves him to um, to uh, to the mercy of. of, of um, the gang to be of the stuffing kicked out of him, and here he leaves him to the mercy of of Mike to have the mercy of his hand, um, while he <laughs> while he while he's having while he's having fun with um with uh with, with these uh with these ladies, and and I, I I'm pretty sure that um, Jim can see Mike's eye looking through the keyhole. He knows he's watching. He says, "Right, I'll provide a show for you." And, and, uh, uh, it just struck me. I don't know. Hey, why. Mike, look what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was a very silver and gold moment, don't you think? Yes. Yes. Enjoy my work. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know. I know others do. Now, um, now, now you enjoy my work, and I'm not talking about what I do on stage. Poor Mike. My, my, uh, stu- it's not stuntman, Mike. It's it's um it's um manager, Mike. Yes, manager Mike is, uh, you know, um, Jim is quite the honey badger. Um, he doesn't give a shit. 
and he just like i said he just devours everything that he sees he's you know this is this his life has become full of excess and uh at first you know that always seems like a good idea right yeah i like it i like it a lot but uh, let's course. do as much of everything as we can where's the cocaine <laughs> i can afford it um, i love i love the scene where um they're in the uh, hotel room with you know all the hangers on and the managers and everything and and moon's doing all his crazy wacky stuff and uh, there's like a policeman standing right there, and they're just firing up and smoking the doobie. <laughs> that's and, you right. Know. Yeah, they, they handed the doobie. That's right. Once again, I, yeah. Okay, so as I've already gone, said that the common thematic element between the two films is um, him treating. Uh, you know, women, you know, shall we say, very, very poorly. But what comes out in this film, there, there gets to be the added dimension in here, you know, uh, where he's either going to, um, when he's being honest, he's treating the women like shit. But when there's the public perception, the public image of him wanting to be the lovable uh, mop top Jim, uh, he wants to treat women like the Madonna. So you know, later on in the film, he, um, uh, it, it, when he's gotten too famous for his own good, he decides he wants to do a rock opera or do an opera with an orchestra and a cast of thousands of um, women singing in a choir and, and, and sing this big opera in tribute to um, the woman as saint. And you know he, he's arriving to the he's arriving to the uh, the concert, which is going to be uh, broadcast before millions of people on television. He said, "Oh, I'm I want to do this in tribute to my mother. Oh, yeah. oh, this this about woman as saint, and he's already gone and ditched his wife. He ditched his mother." Um, it's it's almost like the Spinal Tap thing where they have the album "Smell the Glove" and they're like, <laughs> right. they say this is sexist. What's wrong with being sexy? <laughs> No, it's sexist. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like he's just—he—he's just kind of a, uh, kind of a moron. You know, well, this, it's like what—if something comes to his head, you know, I want to celebrate the beauty of women, even though he treats right. every woman that he's ever known like total shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this this film is basically uh, Spinal Tap, but with fewer jokes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like. <laughs> um, uh, Jim McLean treats objects like women, man. Ah, oh, right. Okay, so so we we out of the wrong one. So he's not a bad one. Yeah. Right. He's all right. He's all right. You know what? Let me tell you something. These broads these days, you know, he just got them before they got him. See what I'm saying? Yeah. Um. I, I look. Another 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 common element, I guess, with the other film is there gets to be a moment where you know, he's, he's given a situation that's like a cold slap in the face, where it, you have the you have the chance now to change. You have the chance now to maybe turn back. And in, in the first film, it was uh, um, seeing Ringo getting the shit kicked out of him, or seeing that woman, uh, or, or you know. Uh, come after him with a baby you know lying alone in the apartment with no supervision and ultimately he still walks away so in this film 
because Jim has become too big for his own good, we see these moments of uh, beetle-like madness. And where earlier on in the film it was very appealing to him, all of a sudden he comes, uh, he, he gets word that his mother has died, and um, he does, he, he's got to go back to his hometown to um, uh, for for the uh, the funeral. He goes to the church for the church service, and. It's contrasted with um, you know, how solemn things are with the church, and he doesn't quite feel comfortable being there. And these cutaway scenes to uh, um, you know, girls who've caught wine to the fact that Jim McLean is in town. Doesn't matter if he's for his mother's funeral. Jim McLean, rock idol, is in town. Let's go run to the church and let's. Oh, that was so awful. It Ugh. was. It was terrible. He runs out. So at the end of the service, he comes out of the church. And he's uh, he's caught sight in this awkward moment because he's there with his new glamorous French girlfriend, and he catches sight of the wife and son that he's deserted. Um, the girls come running after him. He goes into um, into the, the limousine, but he gra- this one moral moment. He grabs his son uh, to his three-year-old, four-year-old son who he doesn't even know. Um, to save him from being trampled on by the hordes, and in the in the limo is his you know, comes Jeanette, who he's not actually divorced from yet, um, and her new partner. She's moved on, and he feels this awkward moment. He feels this moment of shame. Um, he parrot phrases, you know, saying, oh, "Oh, like I'm lucky to have a beautiful young boy like that," which is someone else has gone and told him, but I don't think he really knows it or believes it but he this is this one moment where he feels shame about this whole circus of a life that he's leading but you know she she just says look you know just piss off get out of my life i don't need you i love your mother which is more than what you did yeah. you should not have come back to town and it's almost like when he has feelings like that it's almost they're they're, they're very fleeting i mean like he, he might have those feelings, and for that moment, for that that exact moment, he's like, "Oh my, you know, this is my son." And da da da. But I mean, within uh, it, it would just be like if if they if he was doing that, and somebody ran by in a Superman co- costume, he'd be like, "Oh, Superman, you know," yes. and just forget all about it. his. He, he's so shallow and just. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, it's it's interesting because just thinking about like where David Essex was at the time, because I don't know whether you know he'd already had the big single yet with Rock On, but he'd already sort of achieved some level of fame with Godspell, and he, you know, his star was still on the rise. And I think yet they he... said it was close because at the uh, I read somewhere like that that right at the end of this movie they replaced. Like one of the songs with uh, with Rock On, because right. it had become such a big hit that that uh, they were supposed to play. It was either this one or the one before. See, or, I, or, uh, that's that's the thing. I'd read the same thing too, but I'm, I was listening. I, I never heard it. Although at the end of of the closing credits of Stardust, there is a song called Stardust, which he wrote for, presumably for the film, and and. Um, uh, it, it doesn't fit, like I guess, in a rock and roll sense, you know, with this, you know, with where the film would have ended, sixty-seven, sixty-eight, stylistically. But it, it was, you know, obviously fitting in thematically with with the 
the story and that but I, I, I guess just coming back to this with um, you know how he felt that he's making this story he's playing this horrible shallow character um, who's, who's living this life and yet you know did David Essex say you know what well, I've learned a lesson I'm going to walk away from this and yet he sort of went on um, uh, you know, to sort of you know, go on to great heights of fame before um uh, you know, before the general public sort of thought, nah, you know, we're moving on to the next teen idol. I think, I, I don't know, I read he might have gone and done some television after that, or he might have sort of gone, all right, well, you know, I'm smart enough to know, just move on to something else. Right. But Before but, it consumes you. Yeah, exactly. But, it, but the end of this film wasn't the point where David Essex sort of walked away from it or, or tried something different. I still think he had some level of... Um, uh, teenage adulation to um, to confront with but anyway I, I thought that was like a, a really fantastic moment in this film and that, I, I guess that's what I really love about these songs I mean maybe gritty is too strong a word but um, I, I know that there have been you know, other songs that said you know oh well you know life at the top is not all that it's meant to be but here it's sort of it, it's it's almost relentless um and I, I just, I just really love the, um, really love the approach. Uh, uh, this, this is one great line where um, uh, his uh, French girlfriend Danielle, her name is, um, you know, he, he, she's probably the one woman in his life until he goes and disappoints her as well. He, he really doesn't gain any maturity. He learns nothing. But the one, she's the one girl who's willing to accept and she thinks that there's some good points about him but she's not going to take any shit from him either so this yeah. one this one scene where you know he, uh, he he says oh the band's against me everyone's against me. and she she goes and says you know look you know they're, they're with you but you just got to treat them right and you know he says he says something to the something to her like you better watch your mouth and she says to him you know, for a working-class hero, you're pretty bourgeois, and I just—I <laughs> thought that was, a, that, and it was true. It was—it was a great line you know, for for someone who's got your roots. You know, you've become a bit of a pretentious wanker, but you know what? Yeah, I'll still stick with you because you know, I can see that there's some good in you, and you know, I, I think th- there gets to be another you know orgy scene, another threesome scene where you know, Mike is quite happy to uh, sit back and just watch the action not through a keyhole he's, he's keeping ringside. his uh, keeping his man happy he, he, he you is know? but he wants to get that's rid his of- job is to keep him happy and to to uh, point to, to nudge him or to whatever direction they need him to go in uh, he he kind of knows how to play it well I think he sees Danielle as a sort of Yoko Ono type character, oh, yeah. but you know, so he's, he's he basically knowing that she's gone back to the hotel to get to make him a cake or something like that for his birthday, and she he goes down the street and calls up a couple of groupies to bring a bring them to the um, studio to uh, uh, to bang his royal highness, knowing fully well she's coming back to yeah. witness the action. Right, you're now out of the picture. I have him to myself the, the band's ditched I got rid of the band I got rid of you um, we're, we're ready to follow the next level of excess together and that's where he goes and buys the um, 
the uh, the castle in Spain, <laughs> which becomes really his prison. Um, it's so cliche, you know, these days. But I guess back then, you know, at that time, it's like uh, Jimmy Page buying Alistair Crowley's uh, you know, <laughs> right. house or whatever. You know, it, it just it's just one of those things that now looking back, that's become such, you know, it's good. Oh, look at the castle over there. What to buy it. <laughs> I, I, I think I, I got a little bit of change in my back pocket. <laughs> and then they descend on this little this little town, which would have been, you know, perfectly, probably hadn't changed in how many hundreds of years. And here's these assholes just descend on them with all this money and drugs, right, right. And stupidity, and I'm just because gonna... they want it, you know. Oh, see that over there? That castle. Yes, I want it. I think, I think I'll buy it. I think I'll buy it. I got something to say. Well, actually, no, we, we've been doing it all in the Ringo voice. I think we should really be doing it in David Essex as well. I think I want that castle. I like it. It's I like money. it a lot. <laughs> Bring um, me another whore. <laughs> a whole lot of love. Um... I'm beginning to sound like um, like Nigel Tufnell. Who? Yes. I, I, I reckon I reckon he must have been based on the David Essex character. This really is Spinal Tap without without the laugh track. Um, look, I'm gonna I'm gonna change tack a little bit here. I'm gonna ask you this. Um, and this this is gonna open a Pandora's box because I know you don't like the film at all. But how would you compare Jim McClane? To, and we're going to talk uh, purely from a filmic perspective, from uh, someone who really existed. How do you compare Jim McClane to Ian Curtis? Or at least how Ian Curtis is portrayed in Control. I'm so bored. Let's see. Oh, my life is so horrible. Um, I thought that I. I love it. Well, there's definitely comparisons, but uh, it seems like, uh, well, uh, the McLean character uh, definitely reached uh, uh, a higher level of success. He's like the, you know, in the uh, mega superstar uh, thing, whereas uh, Joy Division was kind of, you know, they had their following and everything, but they were nowhere near what this is being portrayed as. Right. You know, where you can do anything, you have all the money in the world, blah, 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 blah. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lesser or a smaller, the Joy Division thing was, a, you know, a smaller version, but no less, you know, there was still the excess and there were still the, the chicks and the, you know, the... the Infidelity. Infidelity, kind of immaturity, too much too soon. Um, yeah, I mean, there's lots of parallels there, but I, I, I um, that movie would would be like this if Jim, uh, if if everything, I don't know, the, the, their success here was pretty quick, and I mean, it was like. Talk about uh, having a, a rock, uh, you know, strapping a rocket on your ass and getting shot to the moon. I mean, this is basically like when you see them first start out uh, with the stray cats. Uh, it's it's being portrayed as very Beatlesque, 
because when they're up on stage and, uh, you know, girls are jumping up on stage while they're singing and I mean, they're just screaming and it's, it's definitely, that's what, what you're seeing right there. I think that uh, I, I think that the Jim McLean character and Ian Curtis are cut from the same cloth, but I just think that uh, you know Jim McLean was definitely more charismatic uh, as far as as uh, being likable. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, he, he's 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 the kind of guy that that. Uh, he has that it factor, whereas Ian Curtis was kind of, uh, from what I saw him being portrayed as and everything, was, you know, kind of, I don't know if I want to say nihilistic, but just kind of a depressed downer. Yes. Uh, and, and whereas McLean is like, you know, he's kind of like the pretty boy, uh, pop star, rock star, rock god, you know. But still, they're they, they're they're brothers in uh, shit, as are brothers at, that are shits. Yes, yes, um, yeah, for sure. Uh, and uh, I mean, look. you can feel sorry for them. Yeah, that's the thing is, is even though they're both in their in their own way shitheads, and how they treat people, treat women, treat other just not just women but other people, you still. It's kind of a sad and pathetic thing because in the end you still feel sorry for him. You know, it's well, it's not I, like you're sitting there, yeah, he got what he deserved. Well, I, 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 I guess, uh, okay, so putting control away for a bit, but just, uh, I, I guess part of the reason why you feel sorry, at least uh, maybe why I felt sorry for Jim McClane in the second film, I mean, you, you know, he brought a lot of the stuff upon himself and there was... I guess it was in his nature to be an asshole, but he ended up being uh, an asshole who ended up having a lot of followers on and, and, uh, and a lot of money. And really, there was a lot of what went on around him, the nature versus nurture thing. So you know, he right. he ended up having you know, people who was telling him that he was brilliant, and he ended up, you know, he had a yeah. manager who was yeah, uh, yeah who, who brought him groupies for three-way. Uh, three-way sessions. Uh, he, he could have all the cocaine that he wanted, and you know, I, I guess it, it could be all too easy. You know, looking out from the outside, thinking, "Well, you know, asshole gets what he deserves." And but you know, yet it would probably be a little bit, uh, I don't know, cruel to not sort of feel some level of sympathy for someone who, who's become a victim of his own circumstance and if he could sort of stop and look at the movie of his life and say this is what you're turning into you know you'll run while you still can you know don't you've you become so addicted you can't even you can't even see it um and that's really what's going on and that's and another thing McClane. that has become so cliche in in uh you know, the, in rock and roll, or not even just rock and roll, but like you know, country music too, or even before that, look at all the blues guys that you know, uh, with the drugs and everything. I mean, you know, uh, this could very easily be you know Elvis Presley. Yes. Uh, you know, hiding out at Graceland, you know, and they come and say, "Hey, you haven't done anything in a while. Come on, let's do this or let's do that," and find him on the shitter with his 
silver or gold uh, pajama bottoms down around his ankles, you know, <laughs> dropped over dead. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember seeing um, uh, a, a musical, oh, I don't know, maybe it was 15 years ago or however far back. Um, it's, I guess, another one of these shows where they take the back catalogue of some famous artist and string a story around it. But this was better than most. This is called um, Are You Lonesome Tonight? And it was basically about the last three days of uh, Elvis's life. But, of course, they you know, cut away. You know, there were moments to you know, flashbacks to you know, young Elvis and you know, how, how we went. So how, how he came up the totem pole and all that but it was less so much here's a story of his life it was really more as I said about the last three last few days right. where you know he's getting he's paranoid and he gets everything that he wants and he gets his minders and, and um, uh, you know Priscilla you know he's completely insanely jealous and people will jump to his every word and this is all in comparison to you know the Elvis of his youth you know who uh um, he was he was hungry for success, but he, you know he loved rock and roll. And here he was—he was just this fat, bloated guy who, um, who, who, who just people jumped every time he, he told yeah. them to. So uh, and, and it, it would be you, it would you, be very easy but for, for us. You know, where everybody sits back and you know says, "Oh, you know, how could you? You know, why didn't he straighten up in this net?" Well, to to for a young guy. You know, to have all this thrown at him, and uh, you know, the, the, with the excess of you know sex and just all the fun and everything, and then uh, and and then you throw in the addiction thing, and then that's that that's where you get to where okay, it's not just that easy to just quit because when you're an addict, and then you have a doctor uh, tell us that asshole's name <laughs> that gave Elvis all the drugs. Uh, um, you know, you have a guy like that, and he's he's saying, "Oh, these are prescriptions. This is for yeah. You can't sleep here. Take this. Uh, you want you're having a hard time getting up. Oh, you need some energy. Take this. Take this. And then next thing you know, you're a full blown addict, and you have these enablers. And uh, that's it's sort of this you know the same thing that's portrayed in this movie. You could whether it's Elvis or whoever you've seen it over and over and over and over but it's just like uh staring into the abyss yes you know and uh, so i think that uh, the one thing about this movie is is when you do watch it you see you know all these clichés and everything and uh again uh jim's hairstyle changing at one point he kind of looks like brian may uh he's yeah 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 that, that, that hair hair. And, but i think that was a, you, i think that was a real david sx hair though yeah i think so <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, as i was watching this one i i was tr- i was just trying to think of there was there were times when and maybe it was just because of the way he looked and he, because he was playing the bass i i thought you know i know okay they're taking little things from from different groups and different things that have happened and this and that, like whether it's John Lennon or whoever, the Beatles. But when he was up there playing the bass, just because of the way he looked, I thought he looked more like Paul McCartney, you know? Right. Uh, But he... um, The, I, I like the, the one guy, they, the girl asked uh, the one guy, you know, what his job was. And he said, roadie. And she goes, you know, what's a roadie? And he said, chips, beer, rubbers, and pills. <laughs> and he has to make sure that they have all those, all that stuff. Um, I, you wonder why, 
looking back at say this the situation where okay it's it's the stray cats and then it's Jim McLean and the stray cats and then they really start pushing Jim McLean he's doing all the interviews he's he's the focus of everything uh, then the, they the the uh, Larry Hagman character who is the uh, you know typical stereotypical Texas American blowhard uh, he is just seeing dollar signs you know ding 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 right and uh, he's my th- what I was gonna say was you wonder in a circumstance like this uh, in the same situation say you're the drummer of this band and this guy becomes the big star um, now you may not be at the forefront and everything but how far it there, there it would have to really go so far uh, before where you would be like, okay, I quit. I'm walking away from this because even though they probably weren't making as much money as he was, but you've seen that in bands a million times too, where there's like one guy or two guys that are the, or the writers, they write all the, you know, most of the, or the, the lyrics. Yep. And then, but, and then the other guys kind of start getting lost in the shuffle. But even though they're this mega success, what would it take for you to say, okay, screw it, I'm quitting. I'm giving all this up. Uh, because but that just shows you right there that no matter how much money, no matter how much fame, uh, these guys eventually are so unhappy that they're willing to walk away from all of that and just say, screw it, we'll just go on our own. We may not become anything, but I, I don't give a shit anymore. I'm tired of seeing this jerk you know, we work just as hard as he does. We, they probably have written, you know, like, uh, you know, the Keith Moon character might say, you know, okay, you might be writing these lyrics, but I'm I'm the one that has to come up with, you know, uh, the drum part or, the, you know, the other guy has to, you know, whatever guitar riff or whatever. And um, that's, that's just something... I don't know. It just always seems strange to me because you've seen that a million times with with bands too, where the the ba- they start out, you know, very young and they're together, and then one guy gets it's like that egomania or whatever. Well, I write the songs, and Paul and I are the ones that actually write everything. When we do the album, we're gonna and George. Okay, we'll let you have one song, mm-hmm. you know. And Ringo, you're lucky to be here, so you know whatever. So I'm, it's weird, and, and you wonder, like, with uh, with now, Ringo wasn't in this one; he was in the first one. But I wonder how he would feel, uh, you know, because this second one, you you could see a lot of it, uh, a lot of their lives going on in this movie, you know, right. with the with the Beatles and stuff that happened. You're right. Yeah, but it's not, but it's not a direct. It's not a direct, like you know, it's not like everything that's going on because I guess one thing I was thinking is there were several things in there where I wasn't thinking, okay, this is the Beatles, you know, this is just another thing, you know, because the inevitable conclusion of the movie wasn't what happened or anything like that, but it's, it could be another cliche. It could be a composite of any number of English fans, but actually there, there was one thing that did get me thinking about the Beatles and it was, 
um, more of an obscure sort of thing, but I remember uh, watching years ago the, uh, that, that Beatles anthology documentary. And <clears throat> like in the, uh, in, uh, you know, thing in the first episode where they're talking about, you know, obviously before they become famous, but, you know, they, they had like, you know, thousands of other bands, but, you know, this was, of course, you know, the band that made it, but thousands of other bands, they had uh, a van, they'd load into the van all their gear, and they'd be driving all up and down the country playing dance halls and holiday camps and they just played hundreds and hundreds of places because that's what they did and then they'd all sleep in the van together Um, so there was a bit early on in this film I think where um, where um, uh, Jim has gone and invited Mike to become their manager and he takes them to the van, and all the rest of the band are sleeping on top of each other. Yeah. So, hey guys, meet, meet, um, meet. Uh, yeah, can you imagine what that a- smelled like? Oh, <laughs> uh, and that was before they were using dope. Um, but the, I remember watching in the anthology documentary, like uh, George Harrison being interviewed, and he said, "Oh, we were real tight. We had no choice to be because you know we're often." sleeping on top of each other so we were really really close so i imagine that they'd gone and built up a hell of a lot of goodwill and you know when you know mccartney or lennon or whoever you know would have gotten too big too big for their britches um there was still probably an awful lot of goodwill that had been built up from those days where they were all for one and one for all as it were Well, and you saw that when with McCartney and Lennon, with uh, uh, after the Beatles broke up, that you know there were several times where I think, you know, Paul McCartney went to visit John Lennon and took his guitar and right. talk and everything. There, there was a, there was still, you know, they they were like uh, almost like brothers, you know, from a long time. Ago, you know, they had they had a lot invested. I think there's um, a I think there's a bootleg out there called a, a, a toot and a snort or something like that, where, <laughs> with um, uh, McCartney had gone up to visit Lennon in, in uh, New York City and um, the two of them just sat down and recorded stuff together. You know, and uh, I've never heard that particular bootleg, but from all reports, I don't want to. Um, oh really? Yeah, Not ugh, bad. Ugh, ugh, you know, you, you don't want to don't want to wreck you know, years and well, years. I- of, I will say that uh, Larry Hagman was very good at this. He was fantastic. <laughs> he, he was, and uh, like he'd be like, uh, uh, "Go write some songs," and none of that artistic bullshit. That's right. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no yeah, don't, yeah. I just want to hear some real rock and roll. I don't want to hear that marijuana music. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And uh, he 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 cut loose with the N word. Uh, kids today like that uh, blank music, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was one. There was. I can't remember who said this. I think it was Mike. Uh, said the line, and I think this was. Now the rock opera thing reminded me more of Pete Townsend, uh, or actually Pete Townsend, or uh, sort, maybe a little bit like. And I think this was just because of the look of uh, Essex toward the end of the movie, um, because I thought he just looked like the guy, and because when he was in the castle hanging out and acting really strange, for some reason, I got just this vibe of Peter Gabriel, uh, and he was talking about this rock opera and stuff, but Mike says, uh, if we do this, he'll be bigger than Adolf Hitler. Oh, 
God. I don't, and I was oh, like, what? 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 what a horrible life. Oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah. They, they really did have too much money and too many drugs. Um, they, you, you mentioned Townsend, but watching during that whole sort of uh, opera sequence, um, the, the lights shining on him in a particular way with his uh, locks and curls and his shirt yeah. hanging open and the jewellery around his neck. First thing I thought, oh, my God. It's it's Roger Daltrey, you know, around. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's completely what it reminds. But I reckon that probably even during that time, I have no idea why, but I just have this impression that Roger Daltrey never lost sight of his origins. And yeah, he had the money, and yeah, he liked to have a drink, and um, uh, and he, he probably indulged in some rock and roll excess. But you know, he. I don't think he ever got so far up his own ass that you know. Be... Now he he didn't get as bad as the other guys in the group, and that actually led to him almost getting the boot. Yeah, at one time because he flushed right. all their drugs down the toilet. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah I and then punched. Uh, did he punch? Uh, he punched Moon. He punched Pete Townsend out. No, I, I or Moon, may have one of the other. But um, there was one scene where when they bought the castle, and uh, you know they were remodeling the castle. And uh, Mike was out on this tractor, riding around on this tractor on this farm. And uh, as soon as I saw that, I started thinking about the uh, the Paul McCartney and Wings song uh, down down on Junior's farm. Yeah, right, right. Where I wanna lay low, you know. Um, there, there were just like several. There were just different things in this movie that triggered. Uh, memories of of songs or bands or people, which that that made it kind of cool. So um, there was one scene in this that, uh, being an animal lover, I wanted to uh, beat the living shit out of Jim McClain. Oh, I know the scene I, you're I talking about. That. I know so the scene awful. you're talking about. Yep. Um, um, and um, I'm not going to say the no, line. You should, you should probably say the scene. You know, the, the, the audience out there wants to know. Oh well, I mean, Mike had uh, when they were living in the or found the castle. Uh, Mike had like basically picked up the stray dog, uh, and it was his pet, and he had it with him all the time. Well, Jim, uh, now at this point, Jim has become full-blown, I assume, heroin addict, because mm-hmm. we see the syringe, and you know, right. and he's beginning to act very strange. Uh, paranoid, strange, irritable, blah, 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 blah. Uh, he's walking around like uh, he's... Uh, king of the castle. I don't know. Yeah, king of the castle. I was trying to think of it like uh, uh, Henry the, uh, the... Early Henry the Eighth of the Tudors yeah, right. or whatever. And he's just being a total dick. And uh, he develops this uh, hatred for this dog. And... Uh, Mike mentions that the dog is pregnant, and uh, later on, uh, just to be a bass, I, I you know, I I never could understand anybody. But they, I mean, you know, I'm not making excuses for the guy. First of all, it's a movie, but second of all, uh, he was on drugs and everything. But he gives this pregnant dog when Mike's not around. He gives the dog a tab of acid. Yep. And then later on, they show, you know, you hear Mike trying to deal with this dog, which is crazed from taking LSD and it's jumping all over the place and growling and everything. And then later on, when they show, the dog's like just laying on its side and there's just blood yep. 
yeah everywhere coming out of its you know uh, uh rear i didn't and, know uh, it would do any harm i didn't yeah, mean it any harm dickhead See, I mean, I, I used to, I, I dated a girl and some of her friends, I mean, they were, they smoked a lot of weed and, uh, they like one, at one time, one of the people had a, a kitten, you know, a small cat, you know, get kitten and they would blow like pot smoke in its face and oh. get it high and it'd be staggering around. Oh. And I'm telling you what I wanted to, I wasn't there, but I, when they, t- I just wanted to beat the shit out of, uh, this because it's just it's 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 abuse i don't care it's sickening yeah. but um there was one line i'm looking at my notes here but there was one line that um at the end of the movie um i don't know if it's it's not like i mean i, I somebody says you can't die i own half of you Right, and that's so just cold, and 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 that's coming from someone who I would have thought would have had more feeling for even after all the stuff that they that these people went through. When somebody's in that situation to to utter a line like that, I mean, it's like God, that's like inhuman or something. I don't know. It's just really awful. Mm-hmm. But it, but it did make a statement. Of, about you know what the the movie and what kind of the people these people were. Yes, yes. All right. Um, okay, so I think we've pretty much covered. I mean, without short of giving away the ending, and we won't give away the ending of this particular one. But um, when Godzilla comes in and smashes the castle, oh, zom. Oh have, my God! I just let it slip out. I'm gonna have to edit this bit out. Okay. Um, oh, damn. Oh no. Well, <laughs> Jim no. McLean. Never mind. I'll leave it in. Uh, <laughs> all right. So what we'll do now? That um, would have been awesome. You have to admit, if Godzilla had gone and really come, okay, we've given it away. In fact, that Godzilla doesn't really do that. <laughs> um, it was it, the three-headed it, it, Ghidorah. That's that's the, yeah, that's the monster that does it. Yeah, for sure. Or was it four-headed? Uh, I can't remember. Oh, three. No, what that you, was. What do you eight. think? What do you think? This is a freak show. Um, right. So what we'll do is we'll go to. Um, uh, Eric reanimate his segment, an album that I love, and as I said at the start of the podcast, he's going to be talking about um, well, not so much an album, um, well, not not a uh, full artistic statement, but more like a, a best of a compilation of the Trogs. And this was recorded a few weeks ago, before the news that uh, the Trogs lead singer Reg Presley had um, had uh, died, which was only, I think, in the last four or five days, I think the news came out as of the time of us recording this. So, um, anyway, have a listen to uh, Eric, and then Zom and I will be back uh, to um, give our farewell greetings. You're listening to Love That Film, uh, Love That Album, with Morris and Zom. Take it away, Eric, the orchestra leader. I want two, I want two, three, four. Now it's time for An Album I Love with Eric Reanimator. I love ED. I want to three. Eric the Reanimator.
small thing, I think I love you. But I wanna know for sure. Come on, hold me tight. Greetings, all. This is Eric Rainmitter back with an album that I love. To be honest, I almost just feel like letting Wild Thing play and speak for itself. However, I would be depriving you of the opportunity to hear so many other great tracks by the one, the only, the Trogs. It has been said to not dig the Trogs is to not dig rock and roll. Formed in 1964, the Trogs were the primitive, the savage, the base side of rock and roll. Love, lust, the apocalyptic need to get some action where their focus through a series of classic singles they kicked out the jams and shook the world let's take a listen I need your loving I can't wait long I get this feeling it comes on strong I try to see you you're always gone decidedly more oriented towards the single. Albums were largely a compilation of singles, maybe a few B-sides and a couple of covers, which when you're talking about a band like the Trogs probably wasn't the worst thing in the world. As much as I love their singles, they did tend to get repetitive, and they were never a band that I would want to have a double-sided concept album from. That said, as you can hear, they did experiment with different tempos, different levels of heaviness, and different levels of sincerity. One song I will not be playing is Love Is All Around, a very lightweight and cheesy ballad that does manage to show another side of the band. As far as which album of theirs I love, that would be either their Best Of or the two-CD Archaeology compilation. The Best Of will take care of your need for just the hits. The Archaeology compilation goes a little bit deeper. What I'm going to end with is maybe my favorite Trog song. Once again, an apocalyptic tale of lust. This is Night of the Long Grass. Catch you all on the flip side. I walk along in dreams I cannot feel, I cannot see The only thing I know is that you're on the road to me I see you're here and gone 
Thanks very much, Eric, for another great segment, an album that I love. And Eric will be back in two weeks on the next program. Now I'm trying to think who I've got. Oh, I know who I've got lined up in two weeks. I'll talk about that after we've done our uh, podcast roll of honour, as I like to call it. Um, so I'd like to give uh, many thanks to the uh, podcasts who um, have given me a lot of support and just in general who I love to listen to week in, week out. Makes me wonder where I've got time to do anything else. But you know, I do listen to these guys. And who do we have on top of the list? Um, who are these guys? Zom and Loaf. Who are they? Silver, silver and gold. Gold and silver. And, and I take issue with you saying that I don't know how to say silver. I mean, you know, Jesus. Well... You know, bloody Quentin Tarantino can't do an Australian accent, and you say that we can't say silver. You know, bad James and I take take issue with that. I do not claim Quentin Do- Tarantino for Dr. anything. Dr. Zom, if that's your name. You Swedes need to work on your American. <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed we do, indeed. Silver and gold, Zom and Loaf, Paleo Cinema, and the Martian Drive-In Podcast is hosted by our good friend Terry Frost, a.k.a. <laughs> the Frost Giant. He sends his love, you know. Frost Giant. Um, the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, hosted by Sam U. Rye and Will Smith, if that's really your name. And uh, they're going to be on the show sometime in the next couple of months, so that'll be uh, very exciting. We'll go out of it. What, what? To make... What, what? Um... The Mondo Film Podcast is hosted by Justin Bozung, and I'm looking forward to when he comes out with his uh, Francis Ford Coppola special. He's got a round table, and he's going to have lots of people sitting around it talking about the films <laughs> of Francis Ford Coppola, or Coppola, or something like that. And Isn't that will... he related to Nicholas Coppola? Uh, 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 Nicholas. Uh, didn't you talk about a film that he recently did, Nicholas Copulation. I don't don't know. Maybe he's in the cage or something like that. Uh, Bitter in the Dark, hosted by Derek Ferguson, Derek Ferguson, and one Thomas DJ. And Thomas DJ will be on the next Love That Album, which we'll talk about in a couple of minutes. The List Film Podcast and its counterpoint, the List Music Podcast, hosted by Ricardo, Jenny. Well, VK and and um, uh, Juan Jose don't host the List Music Podcast, but I know that on the List Film Podcast, as well as uh, Ricardo and Jenny, there is um, uh, Kevin, and I've forgotten the name of the fellow, the last fellow, so forgive me, guys. Um, I don't remember who is the fourth member of the List Film Podcast crew, but excellent shows they both are. Um, Talk Without Rhythm. Um and I've really gotten into this over the last couple of months. But, um, uh, yes, and the music podcasts that I like to give honour to. Sitting in a bar in Adelaide with uh, my good friend Michael Persh, who I had the honour of uh, visiting on my recent drive to Adelaide. So you guys have your horror hound and getting to see each other and meet each other. Well, I got to get together with at barbecue time with my good friend. Michael Push. We don't have Horror Hound, but we, we have his Adelaide Ranch. 
Be Which glad. I, 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 I am. I am. I, am but I still want to come to Horror Hand. And I, I you gotta, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta. What? What was I gonna say? I, <laughs> I gotta come to Horror Hand. <laughs> yada 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 yada. I'm look. My uh, my my good wife Joanne and I have spoken about that when the kids have finished school and and they're responsible to not burn the house down that we might make a trip over to the States. I know that I want to go to either um, uh, the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival or go for my second journey to the um, uh, Montreal Jazz Festival because that was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And we you know, will make a sojourn to um, uh, time it so that we're there for Horror Hound. And if we can't be there for Horror Hound, well, we'll just come to the wilds of West Virginia. Oh God! And, and uh, plant ourselves hey. on, on, the, on the on the porch of Doctor Zom. <laughs> hey, the last person that did that sat out on my porch for six hours. Six hours, not yeah. Six, and not I six sat weeks. inside, knowing they were out there, and, and uh, did not answer the door. Uh, it was a it was a uh, oh, a chick. Oh, right. I bet. You yeah, know. you know how they are, broads. Oh, yeah, broads. Can't get rid of. But you know, you, you but you won't be able to get rid of us either. Because yeah. we'll have driven from, we'll have driven all the way from Melbourne, across the water, in your yellow submarine. Yeah. That's where we all live, you know. Yes. Um, well. So yeah, sitting in a bar in Adelaide. That's where we got started with Michael Persh, uh, the List Music Podcast that I formerly mentioned with uh, Ricardo, VK, Jenny, and Juan. Uh, all time top ten with Ben Eisen, and I'm going to be on the all time top ten. I think I can give away what we're going to be doing. Uh, ben has declared March to be Beatles Month because it will have been 50 years since the release of the first Beatles album. Please, please me. 50 years. I'm, I'm just struggling with my mind to deal with that. And he's declared that month, Beatles month, and every week will be a, a top ten Beatles-related subject matter. So somewhere in that month, we're going to be covering um, our all-time, Stones. yeah, the Rolling Stones, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the the all-time top ten Beatles covers. That is songs that other uh, Beatles songs that other people have covered, as opposed to the best covers that the Beatles did, because that would actually rather be a short list. Uh, but the top ten songs that other folks have covered from the Lennon, McCartney, Starkey, Harrison catalogue, and that list is endless, because there are you know, we're not necessarily limited to the 220 odd songs that they covered. We could be doing ten versions of Yesterday, and that could be exciting in its own right, but I can tell you that I don't have ten cover versions of Yesterday, but uh, but I will say that I do have one cover version of Yesterday, but I won't say who does it, to keep you guessing. So anyway, all-time top ten with Ben Eisen, a wonderful program, and all these podcasts can be looked up on iTunes or on the interwebby thingy. Um, uh, another great uh, music-related podcast, which... Um, I had these guys as guests on my last program, the uh, Soda Jerker team, Soda Jerker on songwriting. And speaking of, you know, things Beatles-related, Simon and Brian of the Soda Jerker team are from Liverpool, and we discussed on the last Love That Album, the fantastic album by the Zombies, Odyssey and Oracle. So I highly recommend that you um, 
check those guys out because um, they've interviewed a lot of really, really great songwriters and they ask fantastic questions and it's just a joy to listen to them. These guys do their thing. Fantastic podcast. Soda Jerker on songwriting. And who else? The Inside Outcast with Evil Dave and Dr. Brandy Sexy Voice. So um, <laughs> I recommend that you listen to any of those podcasts. Um, all wonderful, all good fun. Any podcasts that you'd like to send a shout out to, anything that you wish to recommend to the Love That Album listenership, Dr. Zong. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 